Greetings, and welcome to episode three of the Heavy Metal Bebop podcast, a series of conversations about jazz and metal. I'm your host, Hank Steamer. First off, thanks so much to everyone who checked out the first two episodes of the show. And as I mentioned last time, Heavy Metal Bebop is now available in the podcast section of iTunes. So I encourage you to search for the show there. And if you like what you hear, please consider subscribing and leaving a rating or review. You can also check out the show at heavymetalbebop.podbean.com. That's heavymetalbebop.podbean.com. So our guest for episode three is drummer Kenny Grahowski. And although the jazz metal crossover is vast and growing all the time, there are still relatively few musicians out there who have played both jazz and metal at the highest levels, and Kenny is definitely one of them. He's worked with a variety of metal bands, and one of his primary projects these days is a really bizarre and inventive group called Imperial Triumphant. And on the jazz side of things, he's worked with pianist Andy Milne's Dap Theory, bassist Lonnie Plaxico, and many others. And within the past few years, he's also recorded and performed extensively in the orbit of John Zorn, most notably in this incredible trio called Simulacrum that also includes organist John Medeski and guitarist Matt Hollenberg from the band Cleric. And this band has a slew of records out on John Zorn's Zodic label, and I'd highly recommend them to any listeners of this show. So Kenny and I met up in January, and we had a really fun and in-depth chat. And before we get into it, just a quick note about the interview itself. So we spoke for almost four hours, and due to the way the show was edited, you might hear him throw out a few names that don't get properly identified in the course of the conversation. So when you hear him say Ronnie, that's Ron Kacknick, the guitarist of the band Malignancy. Heller is Malignancy drummer Mike Heller. Earl is the violinist Earl Manian, who Kenny has played with in several bands, including Resolution 15. Alex Cohen is a friend of Kenny's who at one time split drumming duties with him in Imperial Triumphant. Jessica is Jessica Pimentel, a vocalist and actress who he worked with in the band Alakine's Gun. And lastly, there's Scaredy, Grahowski's cat, who hung out with us during the interview. All right, that's about it. Before the interview, you'll hear a little bit of the track Cosmopolis off Imperial Triumphant's most recent album, Vile Luxury. And about halfway through, you'll hear an excerpt from a track by Kilter, a newer band Kenny plays in with the saxophonist Ed Rosenberg and the bassist Laurent David. You can find out more about them at kiltertrio.bandcamp.com. That's K-I-L-T-E-R-trio.bandcamp.com. All right, here's my conversation with Kenny Grahowski. talking about imperial I, i've been spending a good amount of time with with uh, the the newest record um and it's it's really impressive and like i think that you know obviously a lot of the people you've played with we're, we're talking about sort of the, cro- the crossover of jazz and metal and sort of like you know maybe that even those two styles even coming to play in the same band or something like that i think like uh a track like this um cosmopolis mm-hmm. uh, on that record i i just find it really impressive the way that that you know w- within the same track you're playing like sort of the most advanced like you know sort of you know blasting like technical death metal type of thing along with you know very authentic swing happening in, in one moment like i guess i guess i'm just wondering like you know 
when you're when you're doing that, when you're like moving between those two styles, like in one track, like do, do you find that you're able to to make that like a fluid thing where you, you don't just feel like you're switching switching on a switch to do one or the other? Like like how are you able to to be so um, fluid between those two types it's, of music? It's um, essentially it, it it's that it, it is just being fluid. You know, it, it's um, I'm, I just I'm Andres. Andres is his name, a student I was teaching yesterday, uh-huh. or he's not really a student. He's he's a he's a younger musician on the scene. He's a drummer from Colombia that lives in New York. Right. And he, you know, I've seen him a few times because he, he plays in mutual bands and we were talking, we, we took a lesson yesterday and he just wanted to pick my brain about a couple of things and, which is cool that, you know, I don't get a lot of students very often. So when somebody wants to just mostly talk shop and, mm-hmm. and talk this, it's kind of cool. And one of the things that was kind of coming up in the conversation was you know about timekeeping and like well, like how do you know like like essentially he's exploring all these different methods of of developing solid timekeeping and he's doing all the right stuff like it and I mean I told him like dude you're doing exactly what you need to do slow down the metronome focus on breathing focus on being aware be present you know and just and just time just put time into it you know it's just put the time in and before you know it eventually those things just become second nature that you stop thinking about it and you just become it and you just do it and it's the same thing with the musical styles thing you know i mean for me metal is still something i'm learning you know you can listen to resolution 15's first album and you can hear me play metal and i'm not gonna say it sucks but it doesn't even come close to how we sounded on the next ep which was recorded a couple of years later, at that point, we were getting coached and produced by Corey Unger of Blood Has Been Shed. And, you know, it's one thing to sit at home and listen to Meshuggah Records and check out Candiria and, and all this stuff and, you know, get into some black metal and some tech death and, and grind and, all, and go back and listen to Black Sabbath again with a different perspective. And you can do all that, but I didn't have the physical experience of playing metal as I did with jazz. Jazz was something I grew up listening to started studying it at an early age when i started studying music i was already studying jazz and and getting into things on my own and my family also were music fans so they had some jazz records like i was exposed to that stuff Mm -hmm. metal was something so far removed but it took time sitting with playing in metal bands and being part of the new york metal scene and going to shows and hanging out with people and then spending time with the music spending time in the shed because i mean what is a blast but just they're singles. Everyone can do singles. Yeah. Anyone can play singles really fast. These days, I mean, everyone's faster than Buddy Rich now. Everyone's fucking fast. Like, even the slow guys are still like, man, I'm like, I'm okay. I can only play at like 200. It's like, that's fucking fast. Like, not a lot of music exists at 200. Like, it's very few things. But it takes time for these things to develop. And, and you know, essentially, you know, there's a feel that metal has. There's a swing that metal has. That all metal has it. And you can't explain that it's like the the difference between how cubans play in clave versus how colombians play in clave versus puerto ricans versus you know all these things you know they they all have their own swing and the metal is no different black metal the swing of black metal like it's a different swing than how the guys in like like the death metal bands swung like they it's a different feel and you have to honor that. You have to learn that. You have to study that. Even if you don't like it, it's part of the musical history. And I needed to spend time with it because when 
death metal and all that stuff was happening that I didn't wasn't aware, didn't know it existed, didn't care. People would play me a couple things and be like, ah, it's crap. Mahavishnu Orchestra, Billy Cotton plays faster than that. Like that's, you know, that's where I was at. So, you know, it took a lot of years, I think, to get to a point where it's like switching musical styles back and forth just becomes seamless. Mm -hmm, You know, mm -hmm. it, it it took time spending a life with those styles to get it to that point. Like you could look at a guy like a, like a Vinnie Colaiuta. Mm-hmm. You know, that guy's another guy who can play almost any kind of music authentically well at the fl- uh, the flip of a switch because he spent the time and the experience just doing that, like learning how to interpret music as purely as possible. And he probably has a really keen ear, but because, you know, we don't see him sing or play melodic instruments, we don't know. But chances are a guy like that, like who can like, put the beat anywhere and, and like go from playing Cuban music to straight ahead jazz to thrash metal to whatever authentically with the same instrument, you know, cause that's the other challenge is, you know, jazz is a different sound than metal. So you really have to have an understanding of how those musics work to be able to translate jazz on a metal drum set and vice versa metal on a jazz kit. Like I see guys now in New York and other places now that metal is becoming accepted they're they're trying to like I see I even see gospel guys trying to blast and it's like I I like that it's great we all should I mean I'm seeing metal guys do gospel licks and not just gospel chops licks but like they're checking out Donnie McClurkin and Fred Hammond like they're checking out real gospel and learning how to play that stuff which can, is only going to make them better musicians and vice versa these all these jazz guys are trying to learn how to blast and they don't got it. But, you know, it's because they spent 20, 25 years in the jazz scene, playing jazz on jazz drum sets. They've never played at St. Vitus or Trash Bar or any other, like, Acme Underground that used to have metal bands. It was one of the only, in the 2000s, it was one of the only clubs in Manhattan that would play death metal. You know, it's like, you know, it's, you have to spend time with the music. And it's funny, I'll get guys in the jazz scene, they'll ask me a question, I'm like, how long did it take you to swing to a point that you could play with the guys you play with? It took you that long. That's how long it takes to do this. It doesn't matter that this music isn't taught in an institution. If you want to learn a style of music, you got to live with that shit for as long as you can and go as deep as you can. That's, I, that's the only way to, to really get there. You know, and it's, I mean, I'm glad that it translated with Imperial. I mean, I listen to it and I go, eh, I'm always going to critique stuff that, you know, it, that's, I think we're all cursed to like critique what we make, but I mean, I'm glad that it comes across authentically. You know, I mean, even guys in the jazz scene are buying the record. Like, I mean, we, we see the, you know, we see the, when, whenever somebody downloads the record or orders a vinyl, we see it. You know, we get a little email. Zach gets an email and it's like, I mean, guys like Ben Monder are buying the record. It's like, yep. you know, it's like, you know, these are like our heroes. These are like, I mean, I'm happy that I get to play in a band with Ben, like through Andy Milton's Dap Theory, the the Seasons of Being project, where it's like a Dap Theory extended. It's like a ten piece version of the band, and Ben's the guitarist in it. And I mean, I mean, it's like kind of like a dream come true because like his like all his trio stuff and all the like Hydra and Oceana, like like Ted, like that's some of my favorite music. Period. Like, I mean, I it's really dense. You got to treat it like classical music, but I mean, that's some of my favorite Ted poor drumming. And it's some of my favorite Ben Monder. You know, I just like, even all the solo pieces, like I can listen to those on repeat. 
I don't even know if I answered the question. Oh, no, no. I, yeah, absolutely. Because actually that, that whole thing of um, like, quote unquote, authenticity is like a really interesting thing. And like, you know, I, I think like you said, the idea that it doesn't matter what style it is, it like, you know, like you said, it can be sort of institutionally accepted or not. It's still going to take just as long to, to get to that point um, of feeling like you're really immersed enough to kind of play it like, you know, natively, so to speak or something. I guess I'm wondering, like, um, I, I would be curious to know when you felt like you had reached that point or, or something like that point with both styles. Like, when was it that you first felt like you were playing jazz it, it, you know, in a way that felt sort of authentic to you and when you felt like you were playing metal in a way that felt authentic to you, like, because I know there were very different times in your life. So mm-hmm. if you could like tell me about each of those. Oddly enough, just more recently. And I, 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 a lot of it, it's, it, and I, I think I kind of hinted at it with the story about Andres, but it's, it's, the, it's the perspective and it's a mindset. Like eventually you have to just get to a place where you kind of let go of your comfort level of what you think you have or what you don't think you have. Like, is it, you know, it's very easy to go like, oh yeah, you know, blasting, oh, this tempo range is comfortable for me, but north of that, oh, I can't do that. And then meanwhile, you'll see that same guy and he'll play a song at the gig and he's playing 20 BPM faster than he ever thought he could consistently. And he do, he's not aware because the adrenaline, his heart's racing, he's nervous, he's freaking out, he doesn't think he can and he doesn't realize how far he's pushed himself. Now he's, faster than he's ever played and everyone's in the audience going holy shit and that happens a lot you know and same thing you know there's been times where i'm doing gigs here in the city and thinking to myself like this is the saddest sounding shit that's ever been played in this club and everyone sitting here thinks it's terrible and and a lot of musicians here especially in the jazz and classical scene in new york they they think this way and then you get off the bandstand and there's somebody there who's like a musician like, yeah it was great that sounded wonderful you know so a lot of it is 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 mindset but i think finally the place where it was like I'm letting go of this negative perspective that's just a feeling and it's not a real life fact was very recent, you know. And a lot of it, it, you know, in a in a lot of ways, a lot of it was just getting to a place where it's like I I, I can't worry about where I'm at right now. I just here's the song. The song needs this. Mm-hmm. It has to be played this way. It has to feel this way. I just got to fucking do that. It's not about me anymore. And and it in, you know and it which should be obvious, but even if you know that, it's still easy to get trapped with your inat you like how inadequate you feel at times. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I mean, even for metal, like there are guys in the city who are head and shoulders beyond what I'm going to be able to ever do with this music. Like, the only thing I'm ever going to really be able to offer is like a, a perspective on metal, like a like a a different approach to like say, hey, you can. This is how I'm being myself with this music. Because I really don't and I can't give a shit about where I'm at and where I'm on. There's not enough time. Like when you're young, you can worry about where you're at in the totem pole. But I think as you start to go, you can't worry about your position because it's constantly shifting. Because there's always a new generation of people coming up and they're going to, by nature, they're going to push things to another place. It's it's like the ocean. It's it, I mean, it it's always doing this. It's always another wave coming. And, and so you have to kind of just accept that and just go forward and just do what the music requires. And then eventually you find yourself just, it happens because you're not spending the mental energy worrying about making it happen. You're just forcing yourself to, to focus that energy. So I, recently, very recently, it's like, and not just for metal, but I think for a lot of music where it's like a finally letting go of the, the self-critic. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's really hard. It's in, 
You don't say scaredy. <laughs> you know, it's very... Yeah? Yeah, he hears a lot of the kvetching. <laughs> yeah, he's got something to say. He's got some contributions. Mm-hmm. He's like, you are talking massive amounts of shit. <laughs> but but yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know if that answers it, but it's, it's like I'd say within the last couple of years, right. I finally got into a place where it's like, all right, I feel competent enough. And, and it took, I think... Being in several metal bands, having done several recordings and done several tours, you know, I mean, that was that experience was enough. And being around guys who are like of varying degrees of of expertise, you know, John Longstreth now has a studio in the same building where Imperial rehearses. Oh wow! Which is also like Jared and Jared Lippy and I share share a studio. So his band, Ever Forthright, they you know for a while they weren't in the room, but recently they've. They've decided to kind of get back together. They've started writing a new, I think, an album, maybe two albums worth of music. They've like basically they turned our, our rehearsal space into like a recording studio. And they've been working on new music. So I mean there's this like weird pocket Queens metal thing happening, but like Longstreth is in there now, so sometimes he hangs out or I'll get to watch him rehearse with the band, or you know, a couple times he came to the room and like basically gave me free lessons. So that, I mean, all, and just like really good advice and being really encouraging, you know, I mean, that guy is an incredibly sweet dude. And when it comes to metal and metal drumming and doing it as a professional touring and recording drummer, I mean, guy's got massive experience. So it's like just to be able to hang out with him for an hour, 20 minutes or whatever, and just talk to him for a bit. It's that stuff helps, you know, Mm -hmm, especially. mm You know, in jazz, there the the notion of mentoring was was huge. I mean, the the whole lineage of of jazz is built upon that. But within the last ten fifteen years, because of the changes in society, the changes in the technology, the social media thing, what happened to labels, what happened to streaming, and all this stuff. Since now, everyone is so fucking DIY. Even if you're on a label and have a management company, you're still basically creating all the content for these people to then go run them with. Like you're. Everyone's holding more jobs than they than they ever realized. So there's not that much time anymore for older musicians to mentor the younger generations. It's mostly them finding the young hot player, getting them on the gig, getting them the exposure and the experience, and maybe they go on to do other stuff or maybe they stick around. But it's not the same like, I'm going to take you under my wing. Right. I'm going to call you and make sure you're coming with me to this thing or you need to come here and do this. We're going to like, you know, those days are it's harder for that. You know, I, I think I was lucky that when I was in New York, I was part of the last generation where guys my age would be, would if you're lucky or if you were just, you know, fortunate enough, you'd get a good gig and you'd get a, with a reputable musician or even a famous guy. And, you know, they would invest in you. They would invest their knowledge and their expertise. And that also meant that they treated you like a parent. They were tough. You know, I mean, I could tell you gigs where I'm getting embarrassed on stage, but these are, you know, they're doing this, like it may be, fucked up to do it on the gig but it's always from a essentially not love in a in a family sense but love because it's like this music is serious it's sacred we're part of a lineage now so you have to take it seriously you know and and metalheads do the same thing it's just in a different way you know partially because there isn't a whole scholastic intellectual aspect of metal it's becoming a thing now now that there's the bands that have been coming up in the last 20 or so years and now that there's more conservatory people and non-metal people taking the music seriously, 
people are starting to realize that there actually are a lot of smart people in this music and that they know more than just, you know, how to be heavy. It's, it's, and, but there's always been this sort of mentoring thing. Ronnie mentors Alex and he mentored Heller. You know, it's very obvious. It's very clear, you know. They're still, and I'm sure in other little scenes that wherever they are, it's the same thing. Like there's, there's the the music scene that everyone's a part of, and then there's the where the musicians are, and it, like the older generations are coaching the young younger generations. Yeah. You know, I mean, some younger generations are some places they might be more YouTube oriented, but they're still they're going back, they're doing homework, like you know whether it's a good or bad thing because it's not in person, they're at least going to like all these early death videos and checking out Sean Reidhart. You know what I mean? You know, they're, they're doing the homework. It's just, they have the technology now to tap into things that when I was a teenager, those things didn't really exist. It was like GeoCities and, and you know, dial-up modems. It, you, you know, you weren't, you couldn't just spend four hours on YouTube and create a playlist of like the best death metal drummers of all time and just study that shit for free or just at the cost of your, you know, internet connection. You know, it's a different ballgame. Um, I'm like, you, you mentioned a ton of stuff there that I want to get back to, but I'm curious to know in terms of like this, this mentoring thing and, you know, being around older, more experienced musicians, like who, who was that for you in jazz? Like who were the people that you were playing with or that you had direct contact mm-hmm. with that you really felt like you were tapping into some, historical lineage that were really like passing that on to you? The first guy would, would definitely be Lonnie Plaxico. Um, just, he was, he's a bassist that lives here. He's originally a Chicago native. And I did, we did three record, like three full length albums together. One was released in Japan called So Alive. And then, um, and that record actually did really well in Japan. Apparently it was, when it re- released, it was like top five contemporary jazz for months. Like it charted. And we never did a CD release show, never did a tour. Like the only, I mean, the, the guy who was producing the record tried everything in his power to fire me. Like it was like really like such a typical cliche experience of like just being fucked over, but it didn't work. And I ended up doing the album anyway. And at the end we became friends and he loved how I played or at least he pretended he probably didn't, who knows, but they never asked us to do a show. They never brought us to Japan. They just asked us for another record, but this time, a standards record. Mm, mm. And Lonnie was like, I write original music. You know, I already gave you a record that had half covers on it of my own arrangement that, I mean, his arrangements of the covers are like, they're excellent. They're like his version of Maiden Voyage is one of my favorite orchestrations of that tune I've ever heard of anyone doing it. You know, but, you know, they wanted a record of just that, like taking standards this time and doing the same treatment. He's like, no, I don't want to do that. I have three albums worth of music ready to be recorded. If you guys aren't interested, I'm going elsewhere. And he, he did exactly that. He didn't he didn't flinch at the fact that, well, this is an imprint from Sony. They have a lot of money. They can do this, that, and the other thing. He's like, no, it's about the integrity. And it's about the music. I'll find another label to release this other stuff. And he did. I mean, we did two more records. We recorded all that stuff that he wanted to record with them and we released it ourselves well through other labels Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but he was like the first guy that and around the same time too also i would say bobby sanabria but that was more through new school 
but he, you know, he was another, like both those guys, like were very personally invested in how I did, you know, they, they always checked up on me. They invited me to shows that they were doing, wanted me to meet people and network. You know, they, they, if they heard something or saw something that I was doing that they were not into, they let me know whether like for Bobby Sinabria, whether it was in or outside of school, he let me know like, no, that this is not cool. This is what you need to be doing, giving life advice, coaching advice, you know, music advice. And same thing with Lonnie, like Lonnie had a really big impact on how I orchestrate drum parts and, and how I approach the instrument. Like he wrote all the drum parts in his band, even a lot of the fills where he programmed them. And his, his brother, one of his older brothers was a drummer. And he says that this guy was like the most killer drummer there ever was. He was like his favorite drummer. He really looked up to him. But the guy was just like a Chicago, Chicago guy, local, doesn't really gig much or travel much or something to that effect. You know, I, I mean, this was years ago. I mean, who knows? It could be worse now. I, I don't know. Yeah, but, yeah. But, you know, the, that so that had an impact on Lonnie. And through that you know, playing in his band and having to learn his stuff the, the way he wrote it, it really, really did have an impact on how I saw drumming after that. And then after those two guys, I would say another one would be Andy Milne, who I was studying with at the same time at New School. I was taking classes with him. And both those guys, Lonnie and Andy, also came out of Steve Coleman and M-Bass. Right. Lonnie was the original right. bassist in the whole, when M-Bass started way back when with Marvin, Smitty Smith, and Cassandra and all them. Lonnie was the original guy. Like they're they're all Chicago people, and then um, Andy was part of Five Elements and the the mid and late '90s stuff. And then you know with Dap Theory, which I was a fan of Dap Theory, and I was a fan of Sean Rickman. Uh, Sean I mostly knew because of the Sean Lane. He was his touring drummer in the '90s, you know. And, and you know anyone who was a fusion fan in in the '80s and '90s, you 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 knew who the Sean Lane was. Like everyone fucking was like, this is America's Holdsworth. This guy's fucking unbelievable. And Sean Rickman was his live drummer, and mm -hmm. there's still bootlegs mm -hmm. you can find with Sean playing drums. So I knew him of that and and kind of recognized him on some of the Dap Theory stuff, but it was confusing because there was also, there was Mark Prince, who was also the drummer, and, it, it, you know, like, I didn't really, I was, I was in Miami at the time and then just moved to New York, so I didn't know anyone's backstory i like the, you know you know what i mean like i didn't sure. know yeah. the what was i just knew names and associated all the names with one record because it's the only record i heard it was the y'all just don't know and it was like this is like this is like the most i fucking it was like hearing that and mashuga and candiria all at the same time it was like the same year i heard all those bands it was like and then a couple of years later joining lonnie's band so it was like a lot of really crazy dense fun rhythmic stuff happening you know it was it had a big impact and and i mean after school i i ended up joining andy's band right right um when sean rickman left so you know again that's some and that's always been somebody who to this day i mean we don't talk that much anymore on the phone we're obviously still friendly we just did a show a couple of weeks ago i mean we're we're you know we're everyone's still cool but andy's like very like father-like with me you know, in a, in a good way. Like we were very close and, you know, he's like, whenever I've had, you know, questions like life questions, like, you know, I, he's a guy that I oftentimes go to, to talk to. He's very close with me and the family. He stood up in our wedding, you know? So he's like the, him and, and Zell Luis are like the last guys that I would say were like the real, before now, actually I should say, you know, were the last kind of mentoring kind of guys. 
I guess these days now, I mean, Trace Bruins and John Zorn, they're, they're very mentoring, you know, but that's much more recent. That's only the last couple of years. And still, they're part of that generation age-wise of, of the group of guys that I'm talking about. They're all basically within the same range. They're the last generation that's kind of doing that. Guys my age aren't mentoring people. They should be. But they don't have the time to because you got to have a YouTube account and you got to update your Instagram and you got to maintain your your fan page on Facebook and your personal page on Facebook and you got to respond to everyone's comments and things and you got to promote the gig and you got to produce the record and you got to do the crowdfunding to get the money and beg your audience and you got to talk to the Spotify people to make sure that they're in the you're doing all the shit now so there's no time to like I mean I've I'd like to think that in some capacities, Alex was kind of like a mentee for a little while, but the fact of the matter is, is that on a technical level, there's just drum shit that he could do that I'm probably never going to be able to do. I hope that I was like a good influence with other musical things. And there's a couple other guys out there that, that studied with me for years or followed me around for years, but most guys my age and a little bit older, they don't mentor. They don't have the time. Everyone's chasing their tail trying to survive. It's harder. I mean, I, I mean, the guys in Snarky Puppy and Periphery, those would be perfect people to be mentoring generations because they, you know, those guys, they understand how hard it takes to really make something successful. Kneebody's another band. You know, these guys, they understand what it takes to be successful and they stopped at nothing to make it happen. You know, when you see bands that are like, they stay to their thing and they fucking make it work and they build an empire out of it, it's it's... It's inspiring. I mean, that's essentially what Imperial is trying to do in a lot of ways. And it's in a different way, I would say. I mean, we're, we're doing it with music that's a little bit, we don't want it to be less accessible, but you know, we're, we're learning that people are taking our music a little bit more intensely than we felt about it. Like this music is cathartic for us. Like this is like, like cool. Like it's, it's not like the stuff we're writing now, which is gonna be different, but you know, it's like it it's comfortable for us, you know, not because of the difficulty, but just like, oh, we're, we're doing our thing. You know, we're oh, we're not like this band. I mean, like fucking Portal. That's oh, my God. Kralis. Oh, these these guys are like for us. Those guys are way more intense than what we're doing. But we're finding out from a lot of fans. And I mean, even just some some people that we look up to that, you know, friends that we know or friends that we've made recently, like how they take the record versus how we think of it. It's 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 pleasantly shocking because apparently it's far more intense than we realized. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would absolutely, I mean, I, you know, on the basis of that record, the, the other one's great too. Abyssal gods is great too, but on, on the basis of this new one, like I would definitely, you know, if I were talking about like the vanguard of extreme metal or, or especially like in New York or, you know, I mean, absolutely that, that record belongs in that conversation to me. Yeah. I mean, and, and there's like, thank you, you know, and, and, and like I said, there's, I mean, I think this, um, you know, obviously the, the the unique instrumentation and all that stuff. But I mean, I guess I'm wondering about. Again, you brought up so many things that I I want to go back to, but um, but um, specifically in terms of like the jazz stuff, like making its way into Imperial. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that wasn't there as much on the last record. Oh, not really, at all. really at all. I mean, I guess subtly. Uh, like are we ancestor or or the full length the abyssal abyssal yeah yeah abyssal i mean abyssal yeah there's really i mean the, there is 
I'm trying to think of the right way to explain it where I don't take up a lot of time. <laughs> no, I mean, take up, yeah, I, go, go for it. I think, no, I, I mean, I, at least for that record, I can use myself as an example because I, I can't speak for anyone else, but, or any musician, whatever, whatever styles or techniques or things that are part of your DNA, they're always going to be there in the music. Even if you're like, I'm doing this straight up dub reggae gig. A sensitive person, musician or not, they'll hear the jazz or they'll heal they they'll hear the influence of other musics in your playing. I mean, that's what made that that Sly and Robbie rhythm section so incredible. It's like those guys were checking out nothing but jazz. They were jazz heads playing reggae. And then they created the sound of reggae forever. You know what I mean? It's like, but their shit was coming from some other place. And and you know, so I think with Abyssal the jazz is there in in the fact that some of the music that was happening, especially Alex's songs, he had never played them before. He had never rehearsed them. He had heard them that week, but he didn't practice anything. So it was just like, all right, hidden space bar. And he just went for it. And and at the time, a lot of the layers, like especially Abyssal Gods, like I mean Abyssal Gods is like one of the last I would say collective albums we did because there are so many different people on that record that like rhythm section wise. I mean, there's like, there's all kinds of people coming in and out, like different guitarists and bass and all this stuff. And, and Onces too is like a little bit like that. Onces is sort of like this handoff of the old trio with Eric and Alex and then the new trio with myself and Steve. Cause that was the first record Steve was on, but Abyssal had all of us and, and, and Amy who, you know, Amy Mills yep, and, yep. and just so many people, Yoshiko, who's, you know, always welcome. You know, I mean, there, it was like, it was such a, and you know, two different drummers on half the record. It, it, it was more like a, a collective album. And so there's not going to be, the jazz is going to come in the improvising of people not knowing what's going on and just rolling with it or like, Oh, this one channel on the a preamp is blown and we have, we can't do anything about it. We just got to roll with it. Like a lot of that record is just rolling with it. So in spirit, there's some jazz, but musically and intent wise, there really isn't that much jazz. I think now a big part of with Vile is that Steve is predominantly a jazz pianist. You know, even though he's a rock guy at heart, his training, his musical background is, is jazz piano. He's a really sick piano player. You know, so that's really where he's coming from. So even when he plays bass, he plays it like a piano player. But it has all this other knowledge. It has all this other like heavy jazz improv oriented perspective. And the way Zach plays, Zach is almost like he's the rhythm section in the band. The drums are almost half the time just going ape shit, doing whatever the fuck. And live, I mean, I mean, the grooves are the grooves, but live, the fills are different. I might even change up a groove just because I feel like it. And in an, in any other band, like if I did something like that with Hung, that would train wreck the band. If I did that with Alakine's Gun, it would train wreck the band. Maybe Resolution 15, Jim would look at me because he was a jazz guy, and he would just go, all right, Kenny's going here today. Let's just fucking roll with it, you know? And then the other guys who are also jazz verse as well would just do the same thing you know in that context that would be pretty jazz but that band never we never did that we had set parts we wrote stuff it was through composed you know it's a little bit different vile luxury can literally be performed in a lot of different ways than it is even on the record and and if we change it up live i mean 
it can go there now. Whereas I think before, not because, I mean, Eric is an accomplished improviser. You guys fucking got phenomenal ears. And I mean, Piron does plenty of improvising. Yeah, totally. They did that EP where they did a couple of those tracks. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, they are. They have, I mean, I still, I mean, they're, <laughs> they're all gonna kill me because I've been dreaming for years of doing like a, a trios record where I just had a bunch of different trios of all these different musicians in the New York metal scene that I love playing with that I know have improv chops and writing really basic charts or graphic notations or even like some like weird tab thing and just go, here's an idea. Let's do it. And just go from there and just make a like a like a EP, just something to just like showcase these guys and just how musical they are and how developed their ears are in this idiom and language, you know. And there was a bunch of guys that were super into it, you know, Piron guys and some of the Crowless guys, like like we're like, yeah, if if we got the time, sure. You know, like all these different dudes were really heavy in or the Imperial guys, everyone was super gung ho, just, you know. It's like make a studio album, have fun making a bunch of trio records that might not go anywhere. It's like, anyhow, kind of lost track of what we were saying. Well, no, I mean, I think you were talking about how the how the how the sort of jazz or improv mindset was gradually creeping in, and 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 how it became more yeah. part of the band. Yeah, it, it's just, I mean, a lot of it has to deal with Steve and where he's coming from, and and also when Steve came into the picture, especially once we started touring, like when we started touring with Hannah Faxath and all the other bands. We were rehearsing now almost reg- like pretty regularly, twice a week, once a week at least. And Steve is a big improviser, and, and a lot of the music I play is based off of improvising. So we started like, you know, just jamming in the studio with Zach, which is something he's always wanted to do, but doesn't really have a lot of comfort or experience in. You know, he's always just either been in a band and you have your part, or you fuck around and everyone's playing a bunch of shit and nobody's listening to each other and it just sounds like nonsense. Like we're actually getting, we've gotten him to a place where it's like he's listening and interacting and showing him tons of jazz records and explaining things to him. And Steve likes to like test him on his jazz knowledge, which I mean, it's, it's corny, but it's cute. It's fun because it's like, all right, who's on this record? Oh, okay. That was, and you know, cause for him, it's like, it, it helps get him focused on the music in a, in a way. Like it actually gets him to then listen to what it is we're doing and not just like stare at his phone while we're listening to some record. And of his own volition, he's now getting, the more exposed he's getting to jazz and coming to see us do gigs and things like that, the more into it he's getting. So that's having a big impact on how we write and how we think of things. You know, some of the songs on the album, they're pure improv, uh, like a mother machine you know, is basically Zach was practicing giant steps because I guess if you're going to learn how to play changes, let's start with all the hard shit. So let's get like countdown and fucking giant steps and 26-2. Let's, let's not work on the basic shit. Let's work on the hard shit. And he like started, he wanted to revamp the core changes and make them darker. That's essentially where they came from. He wrote it on the way to the studio. I think he was like on a, in a cab or something. He just wrote it on the piece of paper and Steve looked and he's like, Man, these changes are great. Let's fucking do it. So we just went in one take, did the did the did the recording, and then sent the sent the file to a if I remember right, it's JW on there. Sent the file to him. He did like four solos or so, and picked one, and that was it. Done. And then I think there was an what's up, Scaredy. <laughs> then uh, also too the final song, the uh, luxury and death. That that too. That's just that whole thing is based off of the rhythmic cell in swarming opulence 
that's sort of this it's this like kind of chant not a chant like people speaking but like a rhythmic chant it's sort of like it's the it's the key rhythm of the whole song mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. locks the whole thing in and we use it on several parts of the record and also steve is quoting aspects of certain melodies from swarming and filth on there in different parts like like which was funny because like people would like some of the critics who would review the album they would i don't understand why they put that in it's like oh well that's it's the retrograde of of the melody from the opening the, the of the song that it's the same notes <laughs> yeah sure but but you know but then again we're thinking music and and again we're talking about metal and and sometimes like certain things in metal if it's you can't be too subtle and i we thought we were being very blatant and obvious but 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 you know metal is like it's it's heavy it's metal it's it's monolithic by nature so small things are like Either they're noticed or it's like, what is this smudge? Get this the fuck out of here. Like, I've noticed that a lot, which is okay. It's fine. We're, cause we're, we're gonna keep writing the way we write. We don't give a shit what, if you like it or not. We're, we're, we can only do what we do. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's, we're, it's gonna be the same. Well, it won't be the same, but it'll be honest, I guess. That's the right word. Once again, I got away from the point. No, Sorry. no, I mean, <laughs> but, but, but I, you, you kind of did you know, an answer the question in the sense of like, so, so I, I, it's what I was curious about. Like, is this jazz, is the jazz influence in that band coming directly from kind of you and like you say, you and the bassist, like that's really where that all is coming yeah. from. And, and really Steve, really, I, yeah. I, cause I mean, like I'm always improvising when I play, but it was really Steve that was like, we gotta get, we gotta get Zach to jam. We gotta get him to loosen up. We gotta get him to stuff fucking, cause like, you know, sometimes we'll jam and then he thinks we're joking, so he just starts playing like some corny like thrash thing or some corny blues thing. It's like, no, 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 we're being serious. We want you to make music with us. Like, and and now that he's gotten it, and he's like, like you know, there is. I mean, there is the reality that we're all three of us are in different age brackets. Essentially, I mean, Zach's now thirty, but when when I joined the band, he was in his mid twenties, and comes from a totally different world, a totally different, you know, he's an Upper East Side kid, born and raised, Upper East Side of New York, rich family, generations. Like, he's he comes from a different place than Steve and I, and Steve is from hippy-dippy, super liberal, upstate New York kind of area, like, super artistic-friendly, everyone's kind of kooky, and I'm... My family's from New York. They're from Brooklyn and, and whereabout, but I'm not from this city. I'm just here f to do music. You know, this is this is not my hometown. This is not. I, I love this city and I feel comfortable here, but I'm not from here. I have a reason to be here. You know, so it's so there are certain things that we all do that sometimes it it, it takes us a second to go get on the same page. Yeah, but yeah. but but I think from spending so much time together on the road. And jamming together and and becoming a band, becoming a band, which is something I think Imperial never really had the chance to do because Imperial for a while was, it was half of Piron, you know, their half of Piron is in this band, and Piron had already existed, and Eric and Alex already have a relationship and a way of dialoguing with each other, so it had that influence on the music. And I think I mentioned something about Zach being a rhythm section. And in that sense, that's what I'm getting at from before is that when Zach was with Alex and Eric, it was Alex and Eric doing what they do together. 
and him just putting a guitar part to it. And the same thing kind of happened with Steve and I. Zach just does his guitar part. As weird as they are and intricate and interesting as they are, that's just what he does. And it lets it leaves all this room for me and Steve to kind of go ape shit. I mean, because Steve doesn't play like a normal metal bass player. He's not just playing the bottom note and half picking whatever the guitar player p- picks, you know, if you're tremming and stuff. He's like coming up with lines, counterpoint, and swarming opulence. I mean, he literally, when I wrote it, the whole point is that the bass is playing the melody the entire song. Like everything that the horns are doing is echoed in the bass the whole time. And, you know, it's, you know, it, it, it's, it, but the way he, Zach plays, because he's not like a lead, let me melt faces and play a bunch of like linear shit. Let me just play these weird things and let you guys just go fucking nuts. It lends itself to allow our jazz sides to speak more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it gives us the room to like live, you know, like I said, like sometimes I just change things up, you know, and sometimes we have to because something goes wrong and we're wearing a mask and we can't go, oh, hey, I got to fix this thing. Can you guys just like vamp for a second? Like we can't, once the show stops, starts, we have to commit to it. So in that sense, there's a lot of times where we play shows and something goes wrong on stage and it's like, all right, audible and with Steve and with the Steve and I there, I mean, we can go and intelligently improvise, you know, because I mean, I mean, as you know, it's like improvise, like good improvised music doesn't sound like random shit. It sounds like people communicating with one another. And Steve and I have developed this certain relationship now from in the band and also playing jazz gigs outside of the band and doing other improv stuff together and working in different groups and Lately, I've been playing in his rock band. He has a rock band called Zriku, um, which has two drummers. But, you know, I've been playing with them from time to time. So it's like we're developing this rapport and relationship. And it's kind of fun because we're very yin-yang kind of people. But we get along really stupidly well, which is good. You need your rhythm section to get along. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I, I'm like, it's really fascinating to hear about like this process of like, you know, the like a metal band sort of like, you know, coming into its own as like an improvising unit. And like, I like, in terms of though, like, you know, the parts on the record where there are even like, like soloist was was that, you know, whoever was writing the the piece was just like, you know, let's let's actually like bring a soloist into this. Oh, yeah. 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 Every every section, like, because there's there's two there. If I remember right, Zach actually takes a, a guitar solo in Swarming Opulence that no one ever seems to talk about. It's which I find funny because it's it's like it's very like Thornton doll-ish where he like I wanted it to be higher in the mix and I was outvoted. But it's like this it sounds like a synth solo, but it's 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 Zach, you know, and it's 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 easily it's close to being as cool as the synth solo is on Gotham Lux, which is Steve. You know, Steve did all the synth stoles and the piano solos and then J.W. Walter did the trombone solo and then the trumpet soloist. The first trumpet on Swarming, like the main melody is this guy, Jonathan Powell, who's an old and dear friend of mine, played on a bunch of his records. He yeah, a, I think I tracked on one of those records. Uh, the new, well, he has a group called New Sangha. Exactly. Yeah, they, 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 Very yeah. cool record. Yeah, yeah. He's, he, he's, he's another really visionary musician. And I'm really, his brother, Jeremy, actually lives in this neighborhood motherfucker tenor player like those two guys they're like they're like the Brecker brothers they're like they write their asses off they play their asses off they're Florida guys too they're the, but they were I forget if they were Tampa or Jupiter Florida but a little bit north of where I grew up um, but 
you know, they like that. Jonathan was the lead trumpet on Swarming, and then, um, oh no, 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 I don't want to forget his name. Oh shit, I gotta look it up. I actually gotta look at the the record. Sure, <laughs> because because I really love this musician. He's a fucking fantastic trumpet player, and he's the guy that takes the trumpet solos and the muted trumpet solo. Okay, on uh, on on on, uh, on Cosmopolis. So I got. I just gotta. I gotta look that up. Because I'm gonna Ben Hankel. Ben Hankel is a serious, serious motherfucker. The other trumpet player on this was actually Jeff Hermanson, who played who played trumpet in Lonnie Plaxell's band. Okay. But yeah, that's a bunch of names. But Ben Hankel is the one I was looking. Right, for. right, 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 right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's I guess like it's kind of interesting thing about all this because it sounds like from what you're saying, like your your deep background in a lot of this stuff. It sounds like and correct me if I'm wrong, but that you came to kind of like fusion type of things, maybe even before like straight ahead jazz, like, like was this oh, my Vishnu stuff? Like sort of like that was like ground zero for you. Totally. Yeah. I, my, I mean, my, my mom and dad, um, both played in, in, in grandpa's salsa band. He was a, he was a salsa musician from the Fania days, like in the sixties and seventies. And dad was a drummer in the band and my mom was a backup singer and but his 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 musical inspiration was like a lot of class what would be called classic rock now but for him that was just rock you know like hendrix and sabbath and zeppelin all the early rock stuff and even a lot of blues he was really into a lot of blues but he loved fusion and he loved progressive rock so mostly as a kid i i liked i mean i liked all the rock stuff i i mean i still love hendrix like any hendrix is is welcome but you know, I really gravitated towards Holdsworth and Mahavishnu Orchestra and, you know, Tony Williams' Lifetime. Like, I, I knew the Lifetime stuff and the emergency stuff before I knew he was playing with Miles Davis. I didn't know about him playing with Miles Davis until I was, like, 12 or 13. And that's when I started getting... 12 and 13 is, like, straight-ahead jazz, swing, early American music, really getting into that. Like, even, like, more, like, ragtime stuff. And before that was being into fusion was like a I was really into Brand X, so it's kind of cool and ironic that I'm in the band now. But as a little little kid, I loved Brand X and I loved Holdsworth and like the early Yes records, uh-huh. like the stuff with Bruford on there, sure. early yep. Crimson records, like like any, anything that had John Wetton and Bill Bruford together. I I had it. I listened to it. UK. I I loved as a little kid before I played an instrument. I really liked that music. I didn't really like commercial music. Like Beatles took me years to like and appreciate or even get it. Like even simpler rock was it didn't it it didn't connect. I don't know why. Uh, you know, I liked really intense stuff as a kid, but I didn't like metal and I didn't like the metal and the rock I was seeing on TV. I thought it was stupid. Even though I was like 6, what the hell do I know? <laughs> you know, it's like now it's like fuck, man. If I had to be the drummer in ACDC, it would be embarrassing. Or if I made it, I'd be dead. There's no fucking way. Phil Phil Rudd's a fucking machine. And he's been doing it for however many decades. But I, well, I, is, is he in jail? Did he go to jail? <laughs> I think Phil Rudd is out of jail. And, and there's, I think there's... I th- think there's talk that there's a new record being made that he's involved in. Oh, wow. I think, after, I think they kind of worked out their... 
their shit. Maybe with I, Brian Johnson too. I guess maybe if you just make enough money, you can just throw that at the problem. Could I, be. Think, I thought he was like, like, dude, you like hired an assassin. You're going to jail. Yeah, yeah like, the ACDC situation. I mean, that's a whole other. Yeah. Well, now a uh, fucking homeboy from Cannibal Corpse. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. The Rapture. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering what's going to shake out with all that. It looks like he might not be on that Slayer tour that they're doing. I, well, that's why you don't lose your shit before the tour. Yeah. How many decades do we need to see all of our favorite bands fall apart because they couldn't keep their shit together? Like, when are we going to figure it out? Right. Exactly. Like, exactly. Like, if there's anything I've learned from a guy like Zorn is like, you got to keep it the fuck moving. Like, he's so inspiring. You know, it, it, you know, whatever anyone thinks of him, it's like, that guy does not let anything stop him from doing what he has to do. And it's the same thing when you're touring in a metal band in a van. It's the same shit. And all the bands that are doing well and are successful, they all get that. And, and you know, like, uh, Earl Manian's been working a lot with the guys from Dillinger Escape Plan. And the, when they were doing the whole farewell thing, and Seven Sons was really involved with the last record, which is like... I mean, for Earl, that's like him, like, that's like me, it's like for him, that's like me working with Brand X. It's right. like, this is a band that was seminal in, like, it changed his view of music forever, you know what I mean? And he gets to work with them and be a part of, like, their last album. I mean, that's, it's fucking massive. I mean, that's, that's some, you know, notch on the belt shit. But all those guys, pro as fuck. Super pro. That whole band, they're not fucking around. They're not... The homeboy might be jumping off rafters and shit, but he's training every day so that he has the health to do that. I mean, they're out of their minds, but they're serious about what they do and they're committed and not just in the like, I'm going to sit in my room for 12 hours a day just shredding. It's like, that's that, that's great. That's one thing. You know, like there's a whole... If you want your music to thrive, like you have to put in a lot of work and hope to God that you're lucky and it it works. I mean, mm -hmm. still no guarantee. Mm -hmm. Still gotta be lucky. You know, Zorn, there were moments in his career that he took advantage of that he didn't shy away from that I think other musicians would have. And because he didn't do that, it catapulted him to a where he is today. And that's what it seems to give him a sugar. They stuck with it. When I first heard Mashuga in 2001, the first thing I, I was angry, I was like, I don't get how any of you people, not anyone in the room, it was actually a new school class, but how could none of these people that told me that they liked metal in all the years I grew up in Miami never play me this shit? Like, this is more interesting than King Crimson. Like, what the fuck? How come no one told me about this music? How come, oh yeah, you gotta check out metal. Here's Limp Biscuit. Like, why? Like, why would you show me this shit? Like, <laughs> I'm listening to fucking Stravinsky. You're going to show me Limp Bizkit and think this is going to work? You think I'm going to get into this shit? No, fuck that. This is amazing. Like, that was the gateway for me to even... Vile luxury wouldn't happen without Meshuggah. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. just wouldn't happen. Because mm -hmm. I would... At that point, I still was like, I don't get it. You know, I'd rather... You know, Schnitka is way more dense than, like, whatever that shit is. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I was a snob. I was 18. I was an asshole. Like, I was a musical snob. I was like, if it's not fusion, or if it's not jazz, or not some, like, 20th century classical shit, I'm like, I'm not going to have it. You know, or, if, you know, well, you know, they, these guys don't groove like, you know, like some, well, like Cuban theme bop band or something. You know, it's like, it was, you know, I, like, was really ignorant when it came to metal, as a lot of non-metalheads are. And it's, 
I was just so shocked that Meshuggah wasn't popular. I'm like, how could this not be popular? Do you hear this fucking groove? Do you fucking hear this sound? Like, I don't, and at the time, I didn't know how to hear it. Like, I didn't understand how to hear metal yet. It took, even, like, I, I heard Gorgutsen when I was still at New School, and I loved it, but I couldn't hear what they were playing. Like, the timbre didn't, it, like, it didn't sound distorted. It just sounded like, like, the only thing that made sense was the bass and the drums. Right, I couldn't tell. Right. And not because of the quality of the recording, it's because it took me years to hear the timbre of of metal. And once I finally learned how to listen to the guitars and how to understand the swing, and like, I, to me, all metal vocalists sang horribly out of time, and I couldn't understand why. Like, I, Lord Worm, when I first heard Lord Worm, I was like, why does anyone like this guy? He's like clearly in another room doing some other shit. And then when I learned how to hear Cryptopsy and listen to their music and what it was, it totally flipped. I was like, how could they ever have anyone else after this guy? I don't understand. Like, like what the fuck? Like, it took years. It just took, mm-hmm. it took a long time for a kid in Miami who didn't even know that death and cynic existed. You know, like I didn't know about the Tampa Bay. I heard of Morbid Angel and that shit, but somebody would hit play and I go, no, no, I don't want to, do I didn't even bother. Now I love all that shit. Now I, I still go back to that stuff and I listen to it now because it's it's like homework, it's research. It's like, man, I got to listen to how these fucking guys did this. They created this music. It's like Sean, Sean Reinhardt, I mean, like that playing on that album, you know. Human, I mean, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like, fuck, like, fuck. Like, it's like, it's like Vinnie Caliuta on another level and in a idiom of music and and like you know i mean other than like nerdy magazines and 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 metalheads no one like like i had no idea nobody like these fucking guys were these guys were in miami they were rehearsing they they all went to the same high school and they were rehearsing 15 20 minutes away in overtown i had no idea oh man what's this corn shit right you know is, you know i'm i'm happy that they're popular now, but it shows like they just put in the fucking work. They didn't stop. They didn't stop. And yeah, they had nuclear blast supporting them all the way through, but that's the luck. That's the luck part. They were lucky that they had a label that would be as big as that to push them along and say, Hey guys, uh, it's been four years. Uh, you're late with your record. Um, we don't want to be dicks about it, but it's been four years. Maybe you guys should do a record, you know, like, most other labels that have been like, who? Ah, fuck them. That's 90% of labels would have not given a shit about Meshuggah. And they should have. Because look at what they did for music. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look at what they're doing to classical music, what they're doing to the jazz world. The fact that people in India now, like tabla instrumentalists are checking out Meshuggah. That's going to fucking change shit forever. That's the shit. That's the best shit on earth. That's the power of music. I mean, I, I mean, I remember practicing along to Chaosphere at the new school, trying to play that shit, and just, you know, not the rhythm, but the feel, the feel, like the, 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 the thing that Tomas, that he doesn't seem to understand, like, like he is like the pinnacle, he's like, like if the, if, you know, if the pyramid needs to be like this, he is that thing, like his groove is so precise and it's so massive and monolithic that it allows that wall of sound that they create to be a thing. And it taught metalheads, like, guys, this is how it's done. This is, you could do it like this too. It's okay. You know, it's like, 
it's great. It's wonderful. And it's hard to stick with something like that because mm -hmm. it's like mm -hmm. it just, it takes time for people to fucking, because everyone still feels like they have to understand something to like it. And that's a tragedy in all this. Like, like I couldn't tell you like the math of a Meshuggah song, but I could sing it. I fucking love it. I know all the records, but no, I don't know the math. I didn't analyze it and transcribe the whole fucking thing. I don't care about that shit. That shit's boring for me. It's just the feeling of the music, the sensual experience of Meshuggah is why they're massive now because they were just able to get exposed to enough people who just didn't care to figure it out or critique it. They just wanted something new. And, you know, how much fucking, you know, whatever you were listening to before, you're going to listen to before you go, my ear needs something else to hear. So it's it's interesting because it sounds like you kind of, as a way into metal, you needed something that um, had it appealed to that sort of, I guess I would say, prog. Like, like it's almost like you needed the metal that reflected that sensibility rather than sort of like a straighter thing is it would that be accurate yeah. yeah and and a lot of it has to do with the the circumstances i was 18 i was very opinionated one of those things changed one of those things didn't change you know i had a lot of opinions but i was also young and ill-informed and i was a freshman in college so it's like the very definition of sophomoric like i left miami going I'm not coming fucking back to this place. This shit is jive. I'm going to New York and I'm going to get serious. You know what I mean? It's like, like young idiot, stupid thinking, you know, like clearly judgmental, clearly naive, narrow ass paradigm, you know? So it's like, yeah, if it's, you know, well, you know, Scott Henderson, you know, I mean, still love him to this day. He's a favorite, but you know, like I'm listening to tribal tech when I, you know, could have been listening to this stuff, but I just was like, I was just stuck in that world of like, it needs to be Tony Williams with Miles Davis, like John Coltrane Crescent, like, you know, upper echelon. Like it, it was like, I was still in that phase. Like again, like even still, like I wasn't into the Beatles yet at that age. Like I wasn't into, like I was trying to get into Nirvana, you know, trying to like understand why people cared about grunge. You know what I mean? It was like, I was still very stubborn musically, so I needed something to meet me at the maturity level that I was at, which was very low. And that was it. Not because Meshuggah is immature, but because I was immature, that I couldn't listen to Iron Maiden right. and go, right. wow, these guys are motherfuckers, or listen to Testament and go, wow, this is amazing. You know, fucking Skolnick is playing some fucking serious shit on all those Testament records. And I like should have recognized the jazz in it, but I was so opinionated at 18 and so without knowing it arrogant that I totally missed out on all that stuff. I like all the great 80s guitar players and all these bands, like because I didn't like the music, I didn't listen to any of these monster guitar players that I then spent time when I should be studying deep jazz and getting into like the shit I was studying in the conservatory. <laughs> Now I'm like going back to like thrash records and and anthrax and and hardcore records and I did a gig at CBGB's with my friend's rock band and they were playing Bad Brains and I didn't know who it was and the sound guy who eventually I became friends with in the metal scene was like 
looking at me because he, you know, he had just finished saying, man, you guys were great. Thanks for playing. You know, you guys sound awesome. And I was like, man, thank you so much. By the way, what are we listening to? And he just, his mouth dropped and just was like, are you fucking kidding me? All right. There's a record store right up the street, just past 7th Street. You're going to walk in there. And you're going to buy every fucking Bad Brain CD in there. And of course, I'm thinking, oh, I know exactly where that place is because I live in the church right above it. So I did. I walked in there and I bought those Bad Brain CDs. They had two left. And one of them was thankfully the record that they were playing and an earlier record, which it's the one that's like the yellow and it has like the, the rectangle and the titles in there. I can't remember what that one's called. Yeah, I think that one's just self-titled. Yeah. So that one and Quickness. Quickness is really, really awesome. And he was yeah. playing Quickness yeah. in the stereo. And I was just like, I was like, man, it's like, it's like living color, but like fucking mean as fuck. This is awesome. Like, you know, and at that point, like I just got Candiria CDs. I just got some Meshuggah CDs. Uh, I think I also had, uh, I, I can't remember. I'm trying to think of what else. Like, like you know, I, I, like uh, Gary also gave me, I think, some like thrash stuff to listen to. Like, that was like the beginning of like, well, okay, well, if this is metal, I got to figure out how the fuck we got here and how this happened four years ago and no one fucking said anything. How could this happen four years ago and none of these fucking drum magazines even talked about it? Like, what the fuck? I got to listen to all this other stupid at what at the time I thought was stupid metal, which now stuff that I like, <laughs> you know, I'm like, you guys show me all this stupid metal and here's this amazing shit with this incredible drummer and none of you fuckers are talking. And I'm like, and Ken Shock is like, look at this guy. Like, this is the fucking, the fucking John Bonham of fucking hardcore and metal. And none of you guys in these magazines talk about these guys. Like I was like, I was like, it was, and, and you know, even at that point, I still read modern drummer magazine and all these things. And like kind of after that, I stopped. I just stopped reading all the magazines and stopped paying attention to the gear and stopped paying attention to what those people were telling me was the hip shit to listen to. And I just started listening to people who are like, hey, I'm in this scene of music. Have you ever heard this? No, I haven't. Because in Miami, all we did was play timba and fucking salsa and cumbia and shit. So no, I don't know about any of this stuff. Do tell, you know? It's... It, Sorry. Well, no, I mean, it kind of gets back to that thing you were saying at the very beginning where like, it's like no scene is any less deep than any other scene if you really get into it. And also like, I think it also gets into this thing that something that I've been kind of like, you know, seeing over the, you know, in recent years that it's like, if you really want to understand the like vanguard of, you know, music in general where it's going and you're ignoring metal, then you're you know, you're missing something because like there's, there's real like, you know, pushing going on in that, in that like, like, you know, crazy things are happening. And like, yeah. that's why I think that's why musicians and jazz and people who are interested in just sort of, you know, forward thinking music in general are, are paying so much attention to it because it's like, it's, it's really thriving. It's really developing and like crazy stuff is happening. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it's, it, and it, it's come, it's, it's come to a place now where, and, and I think because of the, Weirdly enough, like, cause metal can be myopic as a whole. It can, it can become very trapped in itself in how far deep it wants to go. Especially you see that on personal levels with certain people, they go so far deep into it that they can't even tolerate anything not within its India. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and that could definitely, you know, that that's, you're going to find that anywhere. That's just human nature. That's just who that person is and how they are. And, and metal just became the thing 
that focused that type of energy. But you know, you could have five finger death punch and you can have gore guts. You can have them both. And that's kind of the beauty of the music is like, look, if you want to just bang your head and chug some beer, five finger death punch. If you want to like bang your head and get out some aggression and also, you know, grow a wrinkle in your brain <laughs> here's all these other fucking bands and they're just as heavy and fun and cool and put on good shows and do badass shit like it's 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 the kind of awesome part of metal like you can do vile luxury and go on stage and wear a costume and put up some lights and add some fucking things and it doesn't cheapen the music you know if, if i wanted to do that when i was at conservatory and put on like I mean I I kind of did for senior graduation I I I I I didn't go full goth or anything like that but I definitely bought like ridiculous outfits I you know I used to dye my hair a lot back then and wear makeup and shit so I like you know one of the guys who's acting as like a one of the people in the administrative office that I we just didn't get along and it's a shame because he's not a bad guy but Dude had a lot of fucking personal problems and he thought he would just take it out on all, whomever he thought was the hotshot musician. So to be a dick, he was like, so you got your suit all pressed for tonight, night of the, of the recital? And I was like, why, yes, I do. Thanks for asking. And I went to like a, like some like freak shop and bought a bunch of shit. And I was like, yeah. And I just came in, was fucking hair out and makeup and lipstick and this like I crazy fluorescent shirt and all these like black vinyl pants, like really tight and studded belts and painted my nails. And I was like, how do I look? <laughs> you know, and then it ended up being one of like the most highly attended senior recitals at the time. I'm sure by now there's been bigger ones, but you know, I was like, I didn't expect a lot of people to come, but it like half the school came out. It was great. It was fun. And he just, he didn't stick around. And I at least had a partial scholarship and some grants, you know, like student loan stuff, like grant stuff like that. A lot of guys there were paying full price. And I'm like, how? How are, how are you, you going to graduate from this school six figures in debt or just about six figures in debt? And, and have you done gigs out here? They don't pay that much. Did you sign a record deal yet? You don't get a lot of money. I mean, even Vile Luxury, I mean, Gilead and Throat Ruiner, I mean, they these aren't huge labels and they pulled together resources to make it happen. They really did what they could they grab where they could, but all three of us fronted no less than a thousand dollars each. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think Zach a little bit more, you know, I mean we, and, and, and again, basic tracks for that album, two days, day and a half, um, you know, half a day to set up the drums and the amps and the pedals, get things tweaked, get sounds, start recording, finish by the next day. You know, I mean, it wasn't a long recording process because we had already been touring together with the band, the, the touring the material, rehearsing it, jamming it, and we recorded live. So it wasn't like, all right, let's take these three days and do drums. Like, that's the worst way to make a record. It always takes way longer when you're by yourself. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how tight your playing is, how well prepared you are. When you record the stuff that you play as a band, by yourself, it takes way too long. It's just better isolate the amps, put some headphones on, fucking deal with it, record together. You're gonna get better. 
the violent sleep of reason. Rhythm guitar, bass, drums. You know, I mean, we even, we, I think we even, no, we did opposite of how they set up. We did drums, bass, guitar. They mm-hmm, did mm-hmm. drums. Oh, wait, no. They did drums, bass, guitar. We did the same fucking setup that they did in the room, but we did it at Colin's studio. You, just three guys and just record until it sounds good as a band. And I mean, thankfully for us, our stuff's not so long form in a way, like, and there is a lot of room to improvise. So, you know, I, our turnaround rate is faster. And I think we're all like less picky than Tomas is. Tomas is like real, like, I mean, you hear him play drums. Like if it's not right, it's not going on the record. Like that guy does not fuck around. He's 100% not fucking around. It's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean like, yeah, that, that new one is in some ways my favorite of theirs. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I haven't been as excited. I, that's not true. I mean, because I did love Obzen, but the way that record feels in a lot of ways is, is how excited I am for whatever they do next because I like this idea of them recording live. And I, I just hope they keep exploring other shit. Just try new things. Get other instruments involved. Get other sounds involved. Like, I don't get why Frederick's solo shit has to have all this cool, timbre, weird shit happening and exclude all that from Meshuggah. It's like, you guys have earned the right to do whatever the fuck you want for the rest of your lives. You've proven to the world how fucking badass this shit is. It's only gonna go up from here. So might as well just experiment and have fun now. Have fun. Enjoy being middle-aged. Like, fuck it. Put weird shit on there. Put normal shit on there. Do whatever the fuck you want. Fans are going to be myopic and react because now we have all these technologies to justify my dear diary moments in public. So whatever. Whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. People are still going to buy this shit. It's still going to groove hard. Yeah, absolutely. But like, not since like Catch 33, which I think for, it's like such a polarizing record because some people are like, this is a masterpiece, and then other people are like, this shit sucks. But, I mean, Violent Sleep or Reason has me as excited as that record did. Because when they did Catch 33, I was like, fuck, holy shit. Like, this is, like, this is classical music. This is pure classical music that they they made a classical record. What are they going to do next? You know, I, that that's where my thinking was at. And then, you know, the other, like, Obzin and, and the... Uh, the Coloss. Coloss came yeah. out, and those records are, I mean, Coloss is okay. Coloss sounds like a band that's just not been not on the road for a long time and not just in a chance where it's like, let me chill the fuck out. And like, hey, guys, let's like hang, let's grab a beer, fucking chill for a shit. Hey, we should go jam. Like, that record doesn't feel like that. That record feels exactly like the DVD they included with the fucking thing, which is like, we got to get this shit done. We're going on tour in like a week. Ugh, fuck. Ugh. <laughs> it's exactly yeah. what that record yeah, yeah, feels yeah. like. It feels yeah. like like, a, like like there's these great ideas that didn't get to like breathe or take on life because they were just busy with keeping the machine going. Whereas like Obzin sounds great, feels great. It's a great fucking record. Can't beat it, you know, but... This one, it's just like I, because they they capture beauty in a way that few metal bands really seem to get, and I think a lot of it's just the environment of them growing up in a Scandinavian country, them being around frigid temperatures, them being able to see mountain ranges, being able to see frozen water. That kind of stuff has an effect on on how people create things, and and so they have this 
Like, because they're not from Stockholm, they're not from the fucking city, they're not fast-paced people. There's this quiet stillness that, that, I mean, Tomas has it in person. Even if he's letting his hair down, he's having some drinks, he's having fun. Like, he's a pretty serious guy up until it's like, okay, I can finally let my hair down. I'm not on clock. Okay, I'll have a couple drinks. And then he's very funny and silly. Have you spent a decent amount of time with him? A little bit. Jessica is a a good friend. Okay, okay. And she's done stuff with Blackheart Sutra. And and when Angel Cote left Alakin's Gun, I was filling in for the band for a little while before Andrew took over. And she's the singer? Singer, Okay, right. And she's also actress on... uh, on Orange is the New Black. Yeah, yeah, right. But yeah, so and you know she's she's been a good friend of mine, and and especially her and Earl are particularly close. Like they they they're very close friends, and they're very similar. Like very focused, very hungry, go getter type people. Very extroverted. Like they're friendly, direct. So it, it's it's good. Whereas Thomas and I are, we're not direct. We're not not in public. We're not like he's very calm. And he's, there's a stillness to him. It doesn't mean that there is an activity. Like, he's thinking. His mind is going very, very, very quickly. But you don't even see it in his eyes. It's like he's still. And he's also, like, really tall. And he takes good care of his hair. And he, his beard is neat. So he's, like, he's very well put together. He's, right. He's an adult. He's an adult. Like, he's not some dude who's 50, dressing like he's 25, and smelling like he's 17. You know what I mean? He's a, the dude's a grown-ass man. And, and that, I mean, you could hear it in his playing. There's a stoicism behind what he does. Like, he doesn't write drum parts. He adds fills when he feels like it. Like, if he didn't have to do a drum fill, he might not even do a drum fill. I mean, he really is like the fill rod of metal. Like, like he, he only really seems to care about the lyrics and the message of the lyrics and how well they're performed. And things like that. That just seems to be more his vibe I, that I get from talking with him about music. It's like the drums are just like, man, eh, these guys write the drum parts. I let them know if it works and if it grooves. And maybe if it doesn't, I change things up here and there. But, you know, at this point, these guys have been writing drum parts for years. So they, they generally try to not write things that are impossible or sound stupid. Right. Um, yeah, like I, I'm wondering about when when you had this kind of like metal awakening, like did it shed, like how, how then did that affect, like let's say if you went back to Tony Williams' lifetime or Intermounting Flame or things like that, like like did it bring some new perspective to your listening to like sort of like aggressive fusion type stuff? Yes. Like, yeah. Because it, before, I mean I knew Black Sabbath and I knew Tony Williams' lifetime and I never made the connection between the two. And being exposed to metal bands and, 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 and seeing the overlap with metal and hard rock and all these different things and seeing the, the, the stories, that kind of helped made the connection of like, oh, shit, you mean Tony Williams was a young guy who was going on tour in Europe with Miles Davis and playing all these festivals and he gets exposed to Black Sabbath and he hears that for the first time. Of course he's going to make Tony Williams' lifetime. Of course he's going to do Emergency. I mean, he's always had some British rocker in his band, whether it was Jack Bruce or Alan Holdsworth. Like, he, it fucked him up. Here's this young jazz kid from the East Coast. It's like coming in like, whoa, fuck, what are these guys doing? Meanwhile, guys like Billy Ward and, and John Bonham, they're listening to Elvin going, holy shit. 
or they're listening to Chuck Berry. You know what I mean? It's like, it's all, it's always been this, you know, it's always, always, always been this. It's just now we have the technology to share these stories much more easily. You know, it's, it, it, it started to, it, you started to see it, for me, it helped make certain dots connect easier musically. You know, it just, it, it started to make sense with the overlap with some of the prog stuff and some of the, just the straight up rock stuff and the jazz stuff and all the fusions that were happening and were already ha- sort of happening. And that was still just only knowing really, like even in the Canterbury scene, like I didn't know the real Canterbury scene. I just know the more popular guys, like, you know, the more known names, the same thing with a lot of jazz and fusion stuff. It's mostly whatever my dad and his friends had or my mom and whatever, you know, she was listening to. And then that was it. Cause I mean, it's the eighties and early nineties. It's there's no internet to go on, you know, it's Miami. So unless you're hanging out with other kids who are also into that shit, which guess what? There weren't not, not in my neighborhood. You know, it's, it, you're kind of just like, well, I have the stack of CDs. This is my entire understanding of this entire world of music. And and so like being exposed to that stuff, you know, it really it's it it's still to this day every time I check out something that's new or old or some other style of music, and then you oh and you find out like this was like you see how that music influenced that musician, which then you see how that influence how that person influenced all these people, and it's it just goes and goes and goes, and that's what's kind of cool. Like Tomas, you you see him at a at a metal bar. If you're going to see him air drumming to anything, it's probably going to be like Maiden, Dio, Rainbow, shit like that. He's not going to like sing along to Gorguts or Behemoth or Death. No. Pantera. He'll sing along to Pantera. You know, it's like, like I was just talking about this yesterday after rehearsal with uh, this band Kilter. It's a new band with, with Ed Rosenberg from Jersey Band. And uh, Laurent David was a French bassist who now lives in Brooklyn. We just did an EP and, you know, we're, you know, really having fun with this band. It's like mostly improv, but very heavy metal influenced jazz. Nice, nice. Yeah, I mean, you know Jersey Band, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, it's Ed. It's like, it's like, I've been meaning to play with this guy for fucking years. And finally, we're playing music together. And, you know, everyone's contributing music and all this kind of shit. And we were rehearsing yesterday. And we were we were just uh, we were just talking about kind of the subject, and I kind of just lost track for a second. Shit, sorry. You, you, you mean just just how how all these things sort of cross pollinate? Is that is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And because because Tomas mentioned in 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 kind of like in a in passing about like when when he got into fusion, you know, because he's like he we were talking one day, and he, you know, he's like he's really into pan. He got really into those early Pantera records, yep. like the like post glam days, like the when they when they were like vulgar display of power, sure. or yep. cowboys, the cowboys from hell, or whatever the fuck. I'm not the hugest Pantera fan still. I I love it, but it's they're a band. Weirdly enough, like I don't I didn't go out and just buy all the records and just sit there and listen to them all. It's pretty much whenever I was in the car with with hung or res 15 it's like all right let's listen to it and just get into it but like that period of that band and like holdsworth is a big part of why mashuga kind of all of a sudden started sounding like from contradictions collapse going into the later shit it's like all of a sudden the guitar solos got like this like 
fusion-y vibe and the grooves are a little bit more like rhythms against a, a backbeat kind of thing. That's because they were listening to fucking Pantera and then hearing Weather Report and Chick Corea and Electric Band and Holdsworth and going, holy shit. Like, they didn't grow up listening to any of that stuff. Like, Tomas, for him, again, it's like classic rock, classic metal. That's like, that's the, that's the shit that he grew up listening to. So that's what he knows. That's what he sings along to. But when they were doing Meshuggah, when Tomas came into the band and Martin was in the band and it started to kind of pass the early days, they were checking out all this like crazy fusion and prog stuff and it had a big impact in American metal in Pantera. Pantera is a, I mean, you could hear it. You could hear the Pantera groove in something like Chaosphere. Absolutely, yeah. Yep. You know, and it was it was kind of fascinating to hear that. It's like, wow. So you mean our our rednecks influenced you rednecks? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because yeah, most of those guys are from small towns. Yeah. They're not they're like again. They're not city boys. They're like Tomas was saying. Like he grew up in a small town. And it's like you know, for him and Martin, like you have snow, you got beer, you got hockey, and you got church. That's all you got. That's that's it. There's nothing else where they grew up. This is beer, hockey, church, and snow. So like, Pantera must have been like a mind fuck for them, going from like even something like ACDC to that. You know, that's got to be like a crazy mind fuck. And it clearly it was. I mean, you don't get chaos fear without that shit. That's the crazy part. It's, it's and the fact you know I when when I first heard Frederick play, I just always had assumed, and we were talking about this in the car. He must have grown up listening to like fusion and shit like that because he just he he understands how to phrase that kind of language a little too well. And it's like, nah, he just started checking that shit out in the nineties and then what, like a few years later, he does Soul Niger within. His ear must be insanely in tune. There's no other way to explain that. Or really there's nothing to do in Umea and you just sit there and you just play guitar along with Holdsworth records until you fucking pass out because I guess there's nothing else to do because it's beer, hockey, snow, and, and church. <laughs> yeah, no, that, 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 like, I, I need to check out, I don't know those, his solo stuff. The Thornball Thorn- stuff? Yeah, I need to, I need to like, make some time for I that. I think you can get it now, like, there's like a remastered version you, yeah. can, you can get, but for a while it was largely unavailable and physical copy forget it not available you'd have to like BitTorrent it or steal it off the internet or listen to somebody's youtube fucking whatever mm. <laughs> sorry no no, no. I don't, that, that sounded way harsher than it should because <laughs> i i mean i i have a youtube account i post stuff on there but sure i just i i understand the the, the need to preserve things but it really sucks when your record comes out and not even a week later, it's already on YouTube and it's already on BitTorrent and it's already on all these things. It's like, do you understand how much fucking money this thing costs me? Do you fucking get it? Like, I I know I'm not gonna sell a bajillion of these things. Can I sell 20 of them? Right. Can you buy it once? Like Bandcamp, name your price. Put fucking $4. Jesus Christ, people. Fuck, are you entitled? Well, I, I was going to say, I think, I think in in some small and maybe gradual way, I think Bandcamp is kind of tipping the scale in the sense that it really like connects people directly with like there's a there's a fan support mentality of like you know you just jump on there, buy it directly from the band. It's yeah. it, it's very gratifying to buy music on yeah. on that platform. I agree. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, I know it's 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 just a personal aesthetic because I, I just like to round up and round down numbers but i usually will notch the 
You know, if it's like, a, oh, we're charging seven bucks, I'll just fucking make it ten. Sure. I I was th- there was something you brought up which I think I might have heard you talk in another interview too, but but I'm specifically curious about. It, but the but the Tony Williams Black Sabbath thing, like I've I've read interviews where he talks about like the Beatles and stuff like that, but I don't think I've ever like. Tell me more about the Sabbath thing. Like, have you have you read interviews where he specifically talks about them? No, I mean it's it's. I mean more like just British rock. Okay, just yeah. okay. Yeah, I, I, I I probably should have been a little bit clearer. No, like, I was just curious. But, you know, it's like he's like touring Europe and, and getting exposed to British invasion sure, rock. Like, sure. Like whether it's the Beatles, Zeppelin, you because you hear like there's certain fills, especially on Lifetime. There's certain fills that he does that because like Emergency, it's still the there's still a lot of jazz vocabulary and there's still a lot of this thing, like the the power thing that he was looking for, like with Billy Cobham. Like, you I mean, you can hear also too, even with those guys, like as they went, like Billy's trying to get some of Tony's looseness and Tony's trying to get some of Billy's power. You know, it was like, cause it was kind of, those were the two guys, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, like even though Lenny White was right there and all these other dudes, but it was like kind of Tony and Billy and it was like, here's like the powerhouse and then, Here's like the like soothsayer. Like here's this like you know something that's like just manipulating phrasing and being like a, a vessel. You know, like Tony. I mean, like not that they both didn't do that, but you know, their vocabulary. I guess is what I mean. Like his vocabulary was still very rooted in bebop. It was still very rooted in jazz and improvisatory music. Whereas Billy's is there totally. He's jazz informed. He plays jazz, but there's this power behind what he does like his you know him being panamanian is is in the playing him like his marching band background it's very much in his playing it's very rudimentary and there's so much just force i mean all these all these drummers now that you hear it's like all the big fusion session guys you see in these magazines now they all sound like billy cobham 2.0 i mean it's like like all the gospel chops guys i mean it's like they're doing his vocabulary but it's just modern you know like uh like like Mike Mitchell and these kind of guys, Gurgo Bolai, who's like a, I mean he can like play and he can emulate any drummers. Like he can do Gary Husband, Tony Williams, uh, Billy Cobham. Like it's crazy. Like he can like emulate all these guys on the same kit. But that's like he grew up when that shit was like, the shit and and in Europe. But with getting back to Tony, it's like the whole being exposed to British rock shaped him. Like being exposed to all of them. You know, whether it's Yardbirds, Beatles, you hear that as he got into more rock playing. It, it He started to sound like Billy Ward. He started to sound almost like those guys, you know, in a lot of ways. Maybe not so much in the tone, like how he tunes his drums and, and how he sets things up, but definitely the approach. Mit, like Mitch Mitchell, you could hear Mitch Mitchell in, in Tony's playing for mm-hmm, sure, mm-hmm. like like on Emergency. You know, it's like there's that, there's that in, again, Mitch Mitchell, I'm sure, is probably checking out Miles Davis Quintet, checking out Alvin and all these other bands like these other guys were. Like Bonham and them, they all checked out American music. Jazz was a part of it. And if you wanted to be a drummer, you had to come through jazz. I mean, that there's, it's, there's no way around it. You have to either come through jazz or come through blues or come through something in America in, in the last hundred years to be in drums like I mean maybe parade music like field drumming is the uh, is the exception but for the most part if you're not living in the US you're probably checking out rock records and blues records and jazz records 
that's the foundation of everything for drums that is you know not music but just drums so it's it's there because you don't really hear that in tony when he's playing with like on on you don't hear that in maiden voyage you don't mm-hmm. hear that with the quintet mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. you don't hear that in his like 60s jazz playing it's not until really even even like i mean emergency really is when you start to hear the more rock stuff but really to me at least opinion wise lifetime like the lifetime band is where it, it really f- realized the rock you mean the, the you mean the holdsworth band the holdsworth band the yeah believe yeah. it the believe it band yeah sorry right. Ugh, names really bad with names but it's like that era like the second incarnation like post-emergency like his rock drumming all of a sudden is like really solidified you know i mean i know some guys still think it's disingenuous there's a lot of guys in the new york jazz scene in particular that think his period of that was really disingenuous but i thoroughly disagree yeah yeah no there's like there's guys that i've met or people that i've heard stories about they're like we're about this you know i think ed was telling me there like some like i don't want to say the name he's a really famous bass player like really prominent bass player but ed was saying a story about how they were talking about tony williams and that came that subject came up about how many guys really did what did they say it was like one of the guys said that period in tony's career where he was lost yeah and and to me i'm thinking like are we talking about jazz though isn't like like i mean if this was supposed to be traditional we'd still be playing like whatever i'm like like what year is this like you know but it's there's always going to be that there's there's always going to be that guy well and also too like okay i we don't need to get down i mean that's a crazy road to go down what you just said but to even to just say like if you just took what you like you said all the tony williams blue note stuff and the miles stuff if you took all the quote-unquote jazz stuff that he was doing it's like did he need to could he have gone any further with that or been any better at doing what he was doing? Like, like, of course, like he's going to want to go somewhere else. He basically like invented something and perfected it and then move. You know what I mean? Like, Like, what do I do now? Yeah. Like what, what do you, what more would you want from him in terms of what he did between like 1963 and 1967? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like we're still, I mean, go to any fucking club in New York city and you're going to hear drummers that are still trying to sound like that. We're all still like, none of us got it <laughs> none of us got it like, yeah like that's, that w- that was a moment in time like that was a that was a real that was a really present human being and the fact that anyone and especially the the guy that ed ed said the name i was like or maybe not ed it might have been laurent but one of those two guys in the rehearsal said it my my brain just like I melted i was just like i but th- but this guy it wasn't like he was a fucking straight ahead guy to begin with. This guy didn't even play upright. Like wah! like I couldn't. I like my. I was like f- I, it blew my mind. I I <laughs> yeah. I feel like I've just personally like I've. I, it's only made me more of a Tony Williams fan. The more because I, I you know like most people like came to him through that '60s stuff and and you know like. Uh, Andrew Hill's Point of Departure and a lot of those other Such records. Such a killer record. Yeah, and like, but but then like you know, gradually taking in the later stuff, like it only made me more. And even the um, the quintet, like in the in the, the last quintet that he mm. had, like in the eighties. Yeah. Um, each new thing that I heard of his, I, it only made me more of a Tony Williams fan. I I feel like was that the, the the quintet was that the one that was there was like a record that they released I think posthumously. 
There's a few records. There's there's it's the band with Wallace Roney. Okay, I think Bill yeah. Pierce. Um, I can't remember. Mulgrew Miller. I think yeah. was in the band. Yeah, they have like a few studio records and this really cool live in Tokyo thing. Yeah, yeah, and that, and that's a that's a fucking great band. It's awesome. That's yeah. such a great band. I mean, and but it's kind of cool though, like how he's swinging in that band. You know how he's how he's approaching the kit. It's like this weird. It's a life. He lived a life, and it's like I had this period in the sixties. I did this, and then the seventies. I did this, and then in the eighties. I'm doing this now. And he was like, like, because if I remember, he was like doing that, and wasn't he also doing like a, uh, uh, fuck. Uh, didn't he do one of the, like the the early recordings also too with like Winton's thing like when like early right? I think so like I think like, yes. like one of those early Marsalis brother records I believe so. like where it's like right maybe he guessed it on on like the, one of the early Winton records or something I'm not sure if he plays in the whole thing I'm trying to I think I saw it recently you know what I'm not gonna look through all that because it's not an alphabetical order. But I, I, yeah, I think he's on one of those like early Winton records where it's like, I think like him and, and uh, Kirkland, like, right. like like that band. Like, and it's like, it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's like, it, they all sound like it's like, it's like the 60s all over again, but he has this like other vibe. Like it's so, it's, it's such a cool mix. If I'm yeah. remembering the right, if I'm thinking of the right record, I, I want to say it was like on CBS recordings or something. It was like early... Like Winton, as he was like coming to fruition as like a band leader. Yeah, yeah. I want to say I just uh, man, I I got to get better with names and dates. But you know, I I I mean, I thought it was cool. I mean, the way he played at that point in his life, it was like it was it was it was on. It kind of in a lot of ways was on the verge of of it could have been something. It could have led somewhere if there maybe wasn't as much. I guess hidden backlash. Like I had no idea that people thought that Lifetime and Emergency were like that. There was even a group of musicians out there still alive that that genuinely believed that that period of his time life was a mistake. Like, like learning that is like I'm still trying to like kind of like cause especially now. Like, there's not a young band or young drummer out there right now who can't thank Tony Williams. That's out there right now doing shit making shit happen or everyone thinks is the hot young new thing not one of those guys doesn't love his whole discography not one of those guys well I, I that's that's really good to hear and I think what I think what it speaks to is that is that at, at the time in certain you know in certain genres like there, there are like these lines drawn like like I mean you know what you're saying about Tony the same thing is still true of like quote-unquote fusion or electric jazz in general there's still like yeah. a, a received wisdom that that somehow people went down a wrong path or that you know somehow which like i think you know with with the kind of benefit of hindsight like any you know any reasonable listener is excited to follow miles for example through all of it you know like 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 yeah. the idea that you don't have enough i mean do we not have enough of him playing great acoustic jazz? Like, you know what I mean? Like, we we, we got a whole lot of that. Like, yeah. and 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 we also have a whole lot in the seventies sift through, and a whole lot in the eighties. I mean, I don't know. It's just like, I think in hindsight, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I guess at the time, people felt like they had to take a side, or or you know, it, it sort of threw people. But because you know. they weren't thinking in time, that's the irony of all this thing. Is they're they're thinking of, they're not being present, but they're only concerned with right now. They may think they're thinking about the future and they think they might be preserving the future. But the whole point is Miles is like, all right, I did this. I showed you all how to do it. I'm going to go over here now while you're all figuring this shit out still. 
and then our jobs are is to go okay this is the lineage we better learn this shit and either do it or also move on you know that's that's i mean that's what i always thought the whole point of music was is like you learn what came before you learn what's happening now and then you go somewhere with it and that's what every time all these guys all these people who become figureheads of whatever style of music that's what they've done and then the rest of the vanguard i guess really let's be real it's probably jealousy because they're not the guy who's the vanguard so it's like they got to draw the line in the sand and forget that things happen over time this gonna time is not gonna stop it's like eventually because now there's a lot of young drummers who are people you don't know people who are in college and his vocabulary now is just what you work on in school you know what i mean like when tony williams did it when elvin did it it was it was life-changing it was it was it was spiritual it was an awakening now that's just a homework assignment now you just got to learn how to do that I mean, I can't tell you how many times where I'm on a gig and literally the chart or the band leader will, will say like Elvin. And that just means you got to swing like Elvin. You just have to do it. Like, like it became a style of drumming that you have to be able to tap into. I mean, not every band director does that. I mean, it's, but a lot of times like the music, the way they wrote the thing, it sounds like, it sounds like McCoy Tyner Quartet or it sounds like Coltrane Quartet or it sounds like, Whatever the fuck. It sounds like Joe Henderson. It sounds like Miles Davis Quintet. It sounds like Andrew Hill. It's like you just know what you're supposed to do stylistically. And from there, you phrase and you create and your sound and your timbre and your tapestry and your comping, whatever, based on who you are and what you know. But like that's just – you got to know that and then you go on. You go on. Yeah. And yeah. So, so whenever I hear – Pretty much, not every time, but a lot of times when you hear musicians have these kind of crazy opinions, almost guaranteed they were somebody who's probably prominent at the same time period or was around at the same time period, but because they were more traditional or because they weren't part of the cool, trendy thing, they got jealous and they got angry and they got bitter about it. And I, I mean, that happens still to this day. I mean, it happens with a lot of musicians because you're not part of the thing that you think is the movement of the day at the time of the music. So, you know, you start to get resentful of it, you know, like people start backbiting or they start talking shit or they go so far as to say, well, that all, all that's bullshit. You know, this, what we're doing over here, this is the real shit. So if you want, like they draw those lines in the sand and it's petty. I mean, we're talking again about music, a gift, the coolest job on earth. Who cares? <laughs> like, really? Like, wh what about all these people who bought the record? Is that invalid because you think it's bullshit? Like, I mean, that's like when you start to pull back from the situation, we're just hyper focusing on psychosis that's allowed to be permitted because it's some famous guy or some established musician or a scene of people or because it's so socially normal that people are allowed to show they're crazy, kind of like what I've been doing this whole time. Like, we can showcase our crazy for the world and it just gets accepted that people forget that half the time what people are saying is either nonsense or it's psychotic, like really psychotic. It's just so common now it's accepted. Like so-and-so saying that what Tony Williams did for part of his career was a mistake. Like the hubris a person must have to make a statement like that. I can't, 
I mean, I could look at somebody on the street who's not doing well and say, yeah, that person's fucking up, but God damn. I mean, you're going to say that this one person who inspired a world and continues to inspire the world and shape the world in a subtle way because you get bands like Nowhere opening for Red Hot Chili Peppers and you tell me that dude didn't check out Tony Williams? Which band? Nowhere. You, uh, do you know these guys? I don't think so. No. It's really a, it's a band now, but it was a duo of... Oh God! What's it? the Lewis Cole is the drummer? Oh, okay, cool. And then, uh, he, he, okay, and then uh, the singer is Genevieve, something with the I don't remember the last name, but great singer, great drummer, great keyboard player too. He's very like I fucking love his music. I love his aesthetic. I love what he does. You know, he's part of, but he's part of this modern crop of musicians that's coming out that's like really kicking ass and doing all kinds of cool shit and playing cool music, he's open, they're opening for fucking Red Hot Chili Peppers. You know, that that dude's checking out Tony Williams and playing all this crazy badass modern drum shit that's clearly coming from a tradition in front of tens of thousands of people all over the world. You know what I mean? Like, Tony Williams, through that guy, is having a little, like, Matt, Mike Mitchell and all these other, like, guys on the West Coast, like, the the or the Dallas guys and all these, like, motherfucker drummers that are out there. Influenced by Tony Williams you go ahead and tell me that all those guys, including Tony, they're all wasting their time. Zorn has come up like in in passing in a lot of this, and I guess I'm curious to kind of like delve a little more into that sure. association. And like, I wonder if you could tell me about like your early exposure to his music, like before you were working with him. Like, what? Sure. What, what, yeah. What was there before that? Um, it's. I mean, I got exposed to his stuff around the same time. It was literally the same time I got exposed to Mr. Bungle <laughs> and. Uh, I had a friend in high school named Edwin Ito, who I, we, I mean, very, very seldomly keep in contact, but, you know, every once in a while we keep in contact. He lives in LA now, but he grew up in Miami and him and his older brother, Taz, uh, Tasahiro, they had a, they had a band in Miami called Zeno and they used to, you know, they did a bunch of original, like, like alternative, like, like very much in the vein of Bungle, where it was like kind of curious alternative rock, like kind of like really heavy bungle sonic youth weird crimson-esque stuff more than half the guys were um guys and then edwin was still in high school but he, i think at that point he was probably a junior or senior and i was an incoming freshman and we just became very good friends he was kind of very much like he was a kind of like an older brother and we hung out a lot and he was really this very calm peaceful human being and he was the guitar player in the high school big band and jazz combo but he was the principal timpanist in the orchestra. And the guy was a motherfucker timpanist. Really happening, really badass timpanist. And he was into all this stuff like Screaming Headless Torsos and Zorn and Mr. Bungle and Faith No More. And again, at that time for me, it was like heavy fucking jazz. Like especially like I was going to high school and it was going to, to New World, which Sean Reinhardt is a graduate of. He was the first dual major. He was the first classical jazz major. Like usually you would have guys who are classical guys, 
or jazz guys and that was it they were separate but he was like one of the first dual majors to graduate from the high school in miami and and edwin was kind of like that he was like in the big band but he also played timpani and he was this killer timpanist so we became really good friends and he would show me all this stuff and at first you know it screaming headless torsos was easier for me to get into because it's like you got jojo mayer and he's got like i fucking immediately loved his playing like you know so that was like it was a little bit easier to get into that music because you know but especially with like the fretless guitar like i still didn't had hadn't heard a lot of quarter tone music yet and and he does a lot of quarter tone stuff with fretless and so for me most of the time i'm like Man, this guy's really out of tune I, I can't like you know i hadn't again at that point hadn't really heard any like like arabic music or yemeni stuff or maybe some african shit where the where the tonality's out like the closest to that we had was was like in in like uh oh you know like like certain caribbean music you know like the the tres and the cuatro can be sometimes they're just out of tune because they're old strings so you get used to that but you you know what the pitches are because oftentimes they're arpeggiating major and minor chords so you know what it is you're just used to that sound being kind of out of tune so a lot of modern tres and cuatro players, they would put like chorus effects to simulate that. So that was it. That was the extent of my weird sounds and maybe like some, you know, modern classical shit, but I had it in a box. So it's like, oh, well, it's modern classical, supposed to be all like, you know, prepared piano and playing sol ponticello and, you know, bowing the vibraphone. Like that just, oh, that's modern classical. That's what you do. You don't do that in rock. You don't do that in jazz. I, that's how ignorant I was in 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 high school. It's like it's fucking frightening. I, I can't. It's it's like scary. You got to start somewhere. So hearing quarter tone electric guitar fusion rock punk and and Zorn and then Mr. Bungle like hearing the first two Mr. Bungle records for the first time was like in the mid late nineties. I was I, I it it really fucked me up. It mostly scared me. It actually like Zorn Naked City. I heard Naked City. It was the first thing of his I ever heard was Naked City. And it scared the shit out of me. I was like, this is not music. I don't know what I'm listening to. And I, I could I would like I I listen I couldn't even like finish it the first time in ninety-six. In, in I couldn't Mr. Bungle, I was able to make it through, but it was really exhausting to listen to. I felt really tired. And the more I listened to it, the more it made sense. And I was like, wow, these guys are like like they can play anything but they don't like anything, I think. I don't know. I can't tell what's happening here. Like, and I would ask my friends, like, what, what, because again, like my, my, my dad didn't listen to this shit and he was more open to it than I was. Like, I would show him screen his torso. He's like, oh, this band is fucking killer. And he would like, he downloaded all kinds of like, not download, he like ordered shit from a catalog, like a, uh, audio file imports had some screaming headless torso stuff so he ordered a bunch of records and he got super into it because he also uh, uh fusinski had a few other bands like other groups so he was just like whatever thing had that guy's name on it he just bought it he just so i think like one of them was lunar crush with medeski and i and I, I think zach danziger's on some of it and or oh no wait no that's jazz punk he bought jazz punk which has Zach Danziger on, which is fucking killer Fusinski record. And then the Screaming Headless Torsos. And, and I think, I don't know if it was Keefe or another one of those bands. Like it was what anything Fusinski on it, he just bought it. Cause he was like, this shit's amazing. And I was like, I don't know. He plays out of tune. He's just like, <laughs> and he's like, well, he's playing a fretless guitar. I mean, you know, like Jocko wasn't always in tune. I'm like, yes, he was. Like, you know, I think that I was, it was 15. 
I was, this is, I sound like I'm hearing it now. I was like, wow, I really sound like a fucking kid, like Jesus Christ. But it took years. It all took all throughout high school, like periodically going back to those records and, 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 and trying to understand it. Zorn was really hard. What kind of helped was being exposed to Masada because I got to see Masada before Tonic closed because my friends, like Gary, uh, the guy I was telling you about, he had a, we had a rock band called Never Even. That's They're in hiatus now, but they're still around. It's still going. Um, but he... He was another guy who was like he was a huge Zorn fan, and he was he was too was really integral in me getting exposed to like how to play rock and how to play metal because my first rock band was his, and after that I joined Resolution Fifteen, which was the first metal band. So that was my first. All right, well I'm listening to Mashuga, and and you're a Zorn fan, and you're showing me Masada, and I'm going to see Masada at this place, and you know it was like it started to make sense to me like oh Zorn's like a really eclectic composer because then I got a I got a chance to hear his the quartet and then some of the other recordings and getting exposed to Zodic. And then some years later, like, you know, several years after Tonic, like in the mid, mid, like 2000, like maybe seven or eight, going to the Stone for the first time and being exposed to that world and then just kind of going to a bunch of shows. And again, I never knew anyone from that world except for Chenier Blumenkrantz. I did one random session with him through Jonathan Powell because those two are Florida buddies. They, you know, they all know each other, and well, not because of Florida, but they, they, they know each other, and they're both from Florida. I guess is what I meant to say. And Jonathan recommended me for a session that Chenier had with Al Maos, who's the other guitar player now in Abraxas. Right, right. And we basically just did improvised grindcore versions of traditional. Orthodox Jewish music. Like the kind of stuff I do on club dates, we were doing that, but instead of like playing it traditionally, I was just blasting the whole time and grinding. And Shanir was had this, he had this crazy five string upright bass, and he would just like do all this weird, like, you know, free jazz shit over. And it was a lot of fun. And I never spoke to any of those guys ever again until Abraxas <coughs> was coming into the picture, which was in 2000, late 2011 into 2012. And that's the first time I actually got to, in a, at least a distant way, interact with Zorn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I've played at the Stone with, with Lonnie Plaxico's band. And I, maybe with Dap, no, not with Dap Theory, who didn't play there. But definitely Lonnie's band played there. And Jorge Sylvester, that was another musician that I've worked with a lot, who's a really, you know, another guy who's a really prolific composer. But he's like a local guy here that very few people seem to know about or, or pay attention to. He's a motherfucker, composer, and alto player and really insane musician creative guy super creative another panamanian musician related to billy cobham ah keeping it all but yeah it was abraxas that where i would first do any masada material for the for the book too and you know like basically Shanir was vetting me for the for the gig because at the time the the choice was hamid drake who's you know super motherfucker but he couldn't do the time. Like the the timing just was not going to work with his scheduling. He was on tour, and they there was a deadline. It was just it wasn't going to work. And even Shanir, you know, kind of was also like you know he loves playing with Hamid. I mean, who wouldn't? But he kind of also he wanted something less traditional because he know he knew that with Hamid doing the Moroccan thing would be really easy. Doing the Yemeni thing or the Azerbaijani thing with some jazz. This is this dude's wheelhouse. He's sure. going to be fucking fine. Yep. 
he didn't exactly want pure that. He wanted something different. He wanted something more, I don't know what he was looking for. And we just happened to reconnect in 2011 at a gig at Le Poisson Rouge. We were both playing in two different bands. He was playing with Pharaoh's Daughter, and I was playing with a singer named Nuria Almaya, who now lives in Israel. But uh, the two bands were playing the same bill at the Sephardic Music Festival. And as I was leaving the gig, he was coming in to do sound check, and we just stopped for a second. I was like, I, I know you. And I, it's like, you know, a guy like Shanir, it's like, there are not that many dudes that look like him walking around New York City. So I was like, I know you, and I don't know why I know you. And we, and we thought about it for a second, and we remembered that one time we played together with they all. And then and, and later that night, he was like, listen, because we, you know, we, we all played. He's like, listen, I got this thing. I can't make a guarantee, but I may have a band and a recording if you'd be into it as something with Zorn. And I was, and you know, we kind of kept talking afterwards and he would come to other gigs because Zorn was like, well, can I hear what he does? Or can you show me something, a video or something? So he would like, he'd come out to 50 bar, five bar and take a video or make a recording and be on the phone while I'm playing and let the band play. And so Zorn was like, all right, well, if you feel good about him, I'm going to trust you and we'll see where it goes from there. And that's where it started. That was like from working with Zorn at least. But I mean, my exposure to his music was still just kind of limited, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, to just what, I would find on my own, which, like I said, over time, like, I, I, and also too, at that point, like moving to New York, I was getting way more educated in free improv music and the downtown music scene of New York and, and a lot of other things that, you know, in Miami, there just wasn't access to. Like Zorn, yeah, you're going to hear about Naked City because people in Miami, there were Bungle fans because there's metalheads in Miami and punk guys, and they know Zorn because he's a big enough name, but Miami doesn't have a huge free improv avant-garde, you know, experimental scene. It's very, very small. And most of the people when I was there, they tended to kind of be more in the progressive and the and the avant-garde rock scene. They weren't jazz guys. Most of the jazz guys down there are like in the tradition or they're really fusion kind of guys, like killer fusion, killer straight ahead, killer both, but not really... Not free stuff, not avant-garde stuff. Now it's changing. Now there's a, a scene that's growing, but it's the younger generations and people that are moving there from other places. But, you know, being here, it like, and being in the city, like living in New York, and at the time, like I said, I was living in a church in Manhattan above it on 7th Street. So just spending most of my time on the street, like in, like I hang out in Yaffa Cafe a lot or other places in the village or I'd go see shows, or just explore the city. Like, I would take nights or days, and it's like, I'm just going to get on the train, I'm going to do what my dad said that he used to do when he was a kid, and just, I'm going to get on this train, I'm just going to ride all the way from one end to the other, and see what the vibe's like, and get off at different stops, and walk around, and come back, and just really do research. And I did that for a long time, just to learn this place where I was going to live, and, and, and his music it just immediately just started to make more sense because Miami is not like New York. I mean, it's a big city, but it's spread out. It's hot all the time. It's humid all the time. Everyone's half naked. Everyone looks good. Everyone's like hedonistic. So his, the, you know, it, like the living experience, it 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 breathed logic into what I was hearing. Yeah, because because yeah. you know. 
you know, without that exposure to that kind of music and, and, and in that environment, I really didn't have a context for it. It was just, here's a burn cassette tape that my friend's given me to listen to at home, and it's just scaring the shit out of me. That's all I knew. You know, it was, you know, so it's, I don't know if, again, I don't know if I answered the no, question. No, sure, sure. But, 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 but that's, that's, that was, it, it was a real gradual process. And I mean, now, like, now that I work with him, Zorn, anytime he releases a record, he's like, here you go. He'll give me a stack of stuff he's worked on. It's literally, I mean, that pile and uh, a bunch of stuff there and some stuff over there. It's all like some of his classical stuff, which is some of my favorite of his writing. Like his classical writing is, is, is really impeccable. Like, I, and the few times like when he's working with Jack Quartet and we happen to be touring together, I get a chance to look at their scores of what he's writing and it's, because Simulacrum and some of the other stuff, Abraxas is like a head chart. Right. And then we just run with the ball. And then right. Simulacrum, I mean, that stuff, it's over here. I mean, it's, it or or the, the new thing with Julian and, and Matt Hollenberg, like, it looks like this. It, it's like a, it's a score. But, you know, it's just, here's a melody and then maybe a bass line and some other stuff underneath. And then that's it. I just... I have to interpret the music and, and you know, a lot of times he'll, it'll say it somewhere like, oh, funk or swing or free or 2D. And, you know, that means like, all right, well, all those melodies, I got to learn them, which is fine because, I mean, it, orchestrating them on drums, it's like, you know, you see the shape of it and, and, and knowing that he's a huge Zappa fan, you know, like he's thinking all those drummers like that came out of that 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 idiom of out of zappa's world where it's like they know all the melodies they know the chord changes they know the score because it's in their drum part so it's like i it allows us to like like you know all of us to like the drummers to really shape the lines in a lot of ways when right. when when he says so but right. but still it's it's you know if if it says funk he doesn't tell me he doesn't sing a funk groove he just goes I trust him to come up with a funk groove that works with the music. And that's my job. So it's like, it's kind of half creative and half work, but the classical stuff, that shit is super detailed. I mean, it's super detailed. And and watching him rehearse them, like a drag string quartet, watching those guys then rehearse that score at a gig. I mean, like the thoroughness that goes into every performance and every bar, every measure, it's, it's, it's not the same Zorn that we get when we're working on Simulacrum or working on Insurrection, you know, where we're, he's in the room conducting us. But again, groove, free, events. Okay, play the line. It's four things I got to worry about. These guys have like dozens of dozens of approaches and revamps and re on-spot rewrites. And it's like, it's, it's a side of Zorn that's so exciting to see because then you see it in the score. Like, I mean, this is like, he probably wrote that within minutes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He had it in his head. He visualized it. He heard it. He probably played it on piano or guitar real quickly, and then wrote it out really fast. But the the classical stuff, you can you can see the time he takes to really fine craft it, so that even if it's not Jack Corp, he's writing for them. But even if it wasn't them, if some other group of people had to play it, every possible instruction that he could think of is probably somehow in the score, and that's such a cool thing to see because it's a side of his stuff that's not really out there you know like electric masada is like a big jam it's like miles in a way it's like it's like electric miles it's like here's a bunch of dudes we all know the song let's just make up the arrangement as we go 
you know, it's it's that and that's I think a lot of what he's more known for is like the cueing and the on spot improvisation and the kind of quick on a dime kind of changes. But yeah, <clears throat> he's a big picture guy. He's a big picture guy, and 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 because the frame is so solid, it allows him the ability to zoom into the details and pick apart every little thing, and then zoom back out. Like not everybody has that. Usually, people are either a big picture guy, and oh, I'm not going to worry about those, or it's the kind of person who gets hung up on every detail and can't see the forest from the trees. You know, he actually has both. I, I guess one thing that is interesting to me about about simulacrum is like obviously there's been you know metal aspects in many of his projects over the years mm -hmm. i mean you, you know you mentioned naked city and there's a lot of other examples but like simulacrum like at its at its heaviest like it it gets extremely metal you know what i mean it, it's it's like a you know it's it's like a it's it's not even like a, a blur genre thing like there are a lot of moments of that where it's you know it'll it'll just sound like Meshuggah or sound like something like, do you have a sense from talking to him? Like, was that, did he have the idea to do that? And then he's like, I got to get these people to do it. Or was it like, is that partly a result of like what you guys can do that he's then in a way? Yes. I mean, because around the time when Simulacrum was happening, Zorn fell in love with Cleric. And, and the thing with Cleric is that they are actually huge, like, like for them, like it's kind of funny. The music that scared me in high school, that's the shit that is like for them, Zorn and Trey Spruance are like gods among men. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. so yeah. Zorn and Zorn had no idea the kind of impact he had on the metal scene. He had no idea that all these bands are like, no, you like like no, you're you're important. You know, you're really important. I mean, even the whole thing with me joining Imperial Triumphant was like dude, we got one of Zorn's drummers. Holy shit. Like, that's how those guys saw it back then. And now, of course, I'm thinking like, I'm not thinking of my association with Zorn or with Secret Chiefs. I'm, I'm thinking I'm just fucking Kenny from New York. I'm just another of 20,000 fucking drummers in this fucking place. You know what I mean? I'm just another cog in the wheel. Like, it's not that big of a deal. But, but even like, I didn't get it. But Zorn really didn't understand like, his impact on the metal world and he there's certain bands that he absolutely loves like he he loves like like oddly enough he likes cannibal corpse he likes really fucked up metal but he, it's like it's his musical taste is strange because it's like he'll know like he'll know zappa but then he won't know and he'll know magma but but he won't necessarily know like uh like brand x we won't know that or he might not know certain king crimson records he probably has never heard of uk you know what I mean? It's mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. but he knows Terry Bozio and he, he knows John Wenton. He just doesn't like, like, cause he's a guy that's like, whatever he's into, he gets into and he doesn't have time. Like he just, he's always like, sure. He's in a hurry, like probably a lot more than I am, but he's definitely in a hurry. He's going for something. So his musical taste, it's like really, especially when it's outside of jazz, classical, his training, his bread and butter, it's very piecemeal knowledge. So Meshuggah, he's not, really into but he loves cleric he loves cleric and so he was like trying to write a record essentially where he wanted he wanted like a tony williams emergency he really wanted that sound like so you a, talked that was a specific discussed reference board not with me i found about this shit way after the fact okay. he had this conversation with hollenberg gotcha because again like he was like doing stuff with cleric at the time and they were doing shows together and he 
all the cleric guys basically made it very well known how much they adored him and, and wanted to work with him in some capacity. And here we are. But it was really Zorn's idea to have this like kind of Tony Williams emergency vibe where it's like, because, you know, I mean, there's, I mean, emergency, I mean, there's events in emergency. I mean, there's some free language in that music. It's not as explored as it would be in like maybe other free contexts, but it's, it's in there a little bit. And Zorn just wanted to make a heavy metal version of that, essentially. And at that point, I'd already been touring with Secret Chiefs. And, and doing Abraxas and, and a lot of what Chenier wanted with Abraxas was like the one thing that I had that other drummers in the city don't have that are in that world is that they don't play double bass. They don't do double kick. And I just did because like, well, I'm in these bands and I got to I got to learn how to do it if I want to be in the band. So I'm going to bust my ass and learn how to do it. Simple. But not a lot of guys do it. You know, Jim Black might be doing it soon. Oh, for real? Yeah. I think he might be getting a double pedal. Is that for a specific project? Or? I don't care. I just hope he gets a double pedal and does yeah, it. I totally. really, I, 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 if he even hears this, I hope he does. You, he, he, get the pedal already. <laughs> you're in Germany, dude. There's like, like so many killer like boutique pedal maker, makers in in that part of the world. Go get a pedal. Do it already. It's fucking sixty year old technology. But anyway. You know, so he wanted that. So he, that's where it came about. He asked if, if, if you know, he basically asked about it. You know, because at that point, Abraxas had done a couple of records with him and, and I'd done some other, like, performances with Zorn as well. Like, he and I were starting to get to have a rapport and, 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 and know each other. And then Simulacrum really, really changed things in a lot of ways for, for I think, for Matt and myself. Because it, it, it kind of gave Zorn this perspective of, like, well, like I know Kenny's a conservatory guy, but he's he's like the metal guy in, in my roster, but these guys can handle this through composed music, like this kind of like this stuff. Like Matt really has found a system for himself to really learn this shit efficiently well and 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 that's what led to this the the constant output was just he was getting inspired by how quickly we were learning the music and then, you know, you get a guy like Modeski, I mean, he could just he could show up and shit in this bowl and you'd be like, fuck, that was amazing. You know what I mean? Like anything he does is incredible. And he's also a monster fucking reader. So even if he didn't look at the score, he could just be like, okay, done. Like, I mean, <laughs> like there's, it's like, there, there's, you know, I mean, I, I like to think I'm a pretty good reader. I can sight read very well. And I come from that of, of, of reading background. But I mean, he would just read shit where it's like, like it would have to be an overdub because he's already playing one line with the band, but there were two other lines written that were like, okay, well, we're gonna have to overdub them. And he's just like playing them both. And it's like, okay, this one's like uh, seven beats over two and this one's eight over three. And he's just reading it and recording it and playing it over what we just did. It's like, dude, and, and you ask him like, Yo, how much time did you spend on it? He's like, man, I was just looking at it on the drive down meaning he was learning the music while driving his car from his house to the gig. It's like, fuck, man, are you kidding me? Are you kidding? <laughs> fucking Matt and I were practicing this shit for weeks. You just fucking reading it down. It's like, but he's worked with Zorn for so long. He's used to reading um, his shapes. So he doesn't have to worry about, like, he can look at it and go, okay, it's probably a quintuplet with two groupings of sextuplets. I just got to worry about what notes they are because sure. they're usually like yeah. these micro 
12 tone rows that because they're happening so quickly, they kind of just sound like some freak out, but it's like this really specific 12 tone row and he just like, it's it's nuts. And again, it's we're all reading this. It's all this handwritten stuff. Like the first time I looked at one of these scores, I was like so nervous because it's like, I don't know if it's an eighth note or a note. I don't know what I'm reading. I like came up with all these crazy grooves and then we get there and it's like, no, don't do that. Just do this. And it's like, oh, okay. This is like, I mean, Matt and I were coming up with all kinds of kind of crazy shit and Zorn was like, no, no, that's not the part that's heavy. This is the part that's heavy. This guy's, you got to just play the music. And it was like, it was this huge learning experience of not just the music, but how to work with him, how he hears his own compositions. Because a lot of times, stuff that Matt and I thought should be heavy as fuck is not supposed to be heavy. And then we do the recording, and then when all is said and done, you're like, yeah, it could have been heavy, sure, but the result is much better. Because he he has the big picture. Even though he doesn't know what it's going to sound like, because he doesn't know what I'm going to do, and he doesn't know what kind of tone Matt's going to have on the record— but he understands what it needs to be. And, and there's never been a time where we thought it should have been heavy and he disagreed or vice versa, where he was wrong. You know, where at the end, well, not wrong, but where his suggestion wasn't the more musical suggestion to make in that moment of the piece. Like, you know, there's, and, and, and not that it's always smooth sailing, but a lot of times, most of the time, it's like we would be done ahead of schedule and he would just feel so happy about it. And the fact that, like, Modeski, I mean, to this day, Modeski really wants to tour Simulacrum. Simulacrum wants to tour, like, tour, like, go on the road and tour, like, a band for real. But it's difficult because it's, we're, we're too conservatory to do, like, a proper rock metal tour with real booking and promotion and get people involved who want to invest and, and promote it like a real tour. Because, I mean, Modeski doesn't have to do ground level bar touring at this point. And, and I mean, Matt and I probably still will because we play in metal bands, but the band itself can easily book national venues. And if promoted properly and paired with a, another really good, solid touring band that's somehow related, whether it's in the progressive scene or the rock scene or the metal scene, it could totally work. But not that many American booking agents are that brave. Europe is, you know, people now are warming up to the, to the, to the band, but I can't tell you how many festivals have booked us and then unbooked us within a week because they hear, they book the band based on, oh, it's John Zorn. It's a new project with John Modeski. Ooh. And then they hear the record and they go, it's too loud for our festival. Wow. A, oh. a, some, I, a, a good number of festivals have turned down the band. Some of whom, again, after they booked us. So, I mean, especially for me at that time where every gig, I mean, still every gig counts. Like if a gig gets, falls through, especially a good paying gig, I mean, it can set me back for two months. Easy. Like that, any musician, it's like you lose a gig like that, it really fucks up everything. And either whatever projects you have going on take the hit or you take the hit. Um, but Zorn still has not given up on, on booking, booking the band. And now that we've played a few festivals and people realize like, oh, wait. We're not Slayer. We're not. You're not gonna. We're not gonna blow out your hearing. You know. And there's this thing that's amazing that they invented. It's called the volume button. And all you have to do is, and the all the sound gets a lot softer. I mean, like I'm playing blast beats. I mean, I can't go crazy on the drums playing a blast beat. It's like there's only a certain volume you can get to. 
you know, so it's people are warming up. Sure, I guess is sure, what I'm sure. trying to say. Yeah. Like it's changing finally, thankfully. And I know that there are American booking agents. Like we did Johnny Brenda's not that long right. ago, and then the East Coast so, run was that, that, we was that did. through Mark Christman. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was like some of the best shows we did, man. Those shows were fucking great, mm-hmm. you know? And then we also did uh, like Boston, uh, the, the conservatory, uh, not the conservatory, but the art museum up there. There are places that have, I mean, the firehouse in Connecticut booked us. And I was like, really? Like, I thought we were going to be too loud for that room, and they really fucking loved it. And I mean, that's a great, that's another place, like, it's a really great place to play. Uh, like, I used to play there often with Dap Theory. We would, we would book there, especially kind of early on before we did the last two records we were we were playing up there somewhat regularly like at least once every year or so and it's a cool fucking place it's like like it's a recording studio so the acoustics are great but still we just i was nervous because it's it's not a huge space and simulacrum can get loud i mean matt's playing through a fender twin that's a loud amp i play loud drums the Hammond organ that it's Medeski's personal organ he tours with it so it's like it's 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 like it's Medeski hot rotted you know what I mean it's not your your average Hammond it's 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 a it's an ass kicker so it's but it we were able to tour and, and play Europe and play the states and it was fine so we'll see we'll see I mean I know Zoran wanted to do one last record with the band so hopefully we'll we'll get to that but uh We'll see. I mean, there's some other stuff planned for this year that's pretty cool, like Zorn related and new recording stuff. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so hopefully we can. You know, I mean, the hardest part again with Simulacrum is just that we all have very drastically different schedules, and Matt has a bunch. You know, Matt's got Shadik and Shardik and and um, uh, John Fromm and Cleric, and they're all active bands and doing new music and making new records and stuff. So it's like he keeps busy. Medeski's just constantly busy and it looks i mean hopefully this year like if, if all goes according to plan like imperial will will be out there a, a bunch this year like there's some good offers like we're still figuring out timing and scheduling but for the most part there's some pretty cool offers and and like internationally and 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 nationally so hopefully we can fit simulacrum somehow in all this so I mean, there's some shows for sure coming up, but I mean, I I would touring would be great. Sure, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you were talking about, <clears throat> um, you know, kind of Zorn getting kind of inspired by the players and the aesthetics and the abilities of the players to to, to like write more music. I, I'm wondering, like, because you know, I was excited to hear so much. You, you know, there, there there is like blasting and you know, obviously like you know, sort of like death metal vocabulary yeah. in in Simulacrum and obviously he's 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 worked with those things before like painkiller and things like that um but like you know you're bringing in like a very like state-of-the-art death metal blasting vocabulary like like do, do you feel like are there conversations or does he say to you like i want like give me like the blast beat right here or or is that like how how specific does it get in terms of what he asked for he can be more specific now because we've worked together enough and and yeah. and and because even with a lot of the simulacrum records matt and i are part of the the process like from beginning to end so we're you know we're we're there when we record it and then we stay behind when the record's done and we help we're like the secondary ears for the mix so urselli's the main the mark urselli's the the main guy he's 
by the time we usually get to the studio, he's pretty much mixed the record or he's halfway through mixing the record. It's like him and Ryan Kelly are like, I've, I've never seen guys that mix as proficiently and as quickly as those guys do. I mean, they're fucking, it's next level shit. You know, they're really fast and good. So Matt and I kind of are there to make sure that aesthetically the balances are correct. You know, in, 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 in a sense of like, that, that like Zorn's like basically basically saying I trust you guys' ears. You know how this music should sound like. I need you guys to be active in this with me, which usually happens. And then you know we kind of like sit and we go, okay, well, you know here maybe the guitar, the left channel guitar needs to come up here, or maybe we need to add another passive guitar that's got a you know some more gain on it, or the kicks need to come up here, the snare needs to come up here, stuff like that. Because especially a lot of times when we're recording Simulacrum, it's completely live. It's everybody in the same room with him conducting us. So I'm playing drums like this. Because of the setup, the music stands here. And he's your direction, but another four feet that way. Doing this. While I'm trying to read this and play. So there's a lot of times where, you know, I mean, even regrettably, there's some metal parts where it's like, man, the kicks are really sloppy here. And I'd love to go back and fix that, but there's, it's not going to happen. It, it's like, it's like we, it, because the whole band was tight, like it's not going to be like a thing where I can just go back and punch that shit in. Like I think I tried to do it once where he allowed it. Like I had to beg him to let me fix it. I was like, I had, I had to convince him that I was not going to be okay with that song if I wasn't allowed to fix it. And he like could see that it was really bothering me and he let it happen. But he's like, that's not what this music is about. I understand that in your world, that's what it is and that's what it takes. Because in most metal recordings, you generally track. You're not with a band. So if your kicks are sloppy on a take, you just punch it in and do it again until you get it or just get another take. There are no other takes. He's booked two days. It's gotta be done in two days. That's it. Like... You know, so it's it's like a lot of times there's 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 stuff that I would if, if from a metal perspective I would do differently, but it's not a metal record, so we have to sort of make sure that in the moment when we're recording the stuff, we just know that it has to be this heavy, or we just you just have to be mentally prepared for it to come, which is tricky because a lot of times you're coming out of like a fast swing or some really out melody or some really mysterious part and all of a sudden, you know, like Zorn, it's like, you know, it could be this quiet, beautiful thing and all of a sudden it's like, and then ballad, you know what I mean? It's like, you have to just be ready for that, you know? And, and, and sometimes, you know, fucking pedal slides and it's like, all right, well, this is like the easiest thrash metal part and you can hear the kicks going, and he doesn't care. He likes that. Mm-hmm. He kind of, because again, like for him, like the metal that he's referring to is like early, like proto black metal, proto grind and early death metal. Like the the little things that he's heard, like anal cunt and cannibal corpse and things like that. With those, you know, that's not George Colias playing in those bands or Gene Hoagland. It's like, this is like some, you know, it's, it's raw. It's the beginning. It's, it's, and that's, he likes that, 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 that intensity of, not intensity of necessarily of the music, but the intensity of the person striving to play something. He loves that. And I think that's part of the reason why he gets inspired because even when we're nailing the stuff on the recordings and the moments where it actually is nailed, 
he knows that we're striving to nail it. We're not fucking around. We're not playing it confidently like, oh, I got this. Like we're reaching for it. And that's the energy he wants to capture. So he doesn't mind if it's a little sloppy or if the kicks aren't even or if the blast is a little bit under for the first couple of bars and then it picks up. He'd rather that than like some super slick, super nailed thing. It's like he kind of like wants the Zappa thing, but not so OCD. If, if there's a if there's a way to simplify that, so it's yeah, it, it's interesting because it's like it kind of harks back to in the '80s when he would have, you know, Joey Baron playing this stuff, which probably wasn't like native to his vocabulary as a musician, but he maybe and it was l- new, yeah, I liking mean, the sound of somebody kind of like aiming at something that's maybe not, yeah, you know what I mean, yeah, and it's especially so because I mean it's like Zorn too, especially like his hearing tends to. He's a alto saxophonist, plays guitar, plays violin. So his hearing definitely tends to center more on the top end of the spectrum, like where his ear naturally goes. So low end stuff can sometimes really fuck with him. So it's a very delicate balance where it's like he understands that you know double bass is gonna be a lot of kick. It's gonna be a lot, but you know I have to kind of like I can't go full crazy like I do with imperial like like i can't play physically how i play an imperial with that so i have to like simulate the timbre and the intensity but like kind of nerfed a little bit and especially too because also the the everyone's in the room with me and they're not they're not wearing in-ear monitors they're just wearing like like those kind of like a wrap around the head earphones they're not they're not blocking that much sound so if i start killing them halfway through the day zorn's gonna be like i can't i'm I'm fucking done. Like they're all going to be like that because they're it's punishing. You know, it's like in and you know the studio is not a it's not like a twenty foot tall ceiling. It's like you don't got to like play for the rafters. I mean, you can a tighter room. You can get that intense. Like if you if you run the game, like if you play with um, you know just studio drumming, like you know where the peak is. Where it's like if you get to right in that sweet spot in the red, you're pushing the the pre. And it gives you that big, intense sound, but you're not actually whacking the shit out of the drums. You know, that's so that's definitely a big part of it. Because some of those songs, like especially the later Simulacrum records, where he's having like like five against two or five against three, but then there's like these sextuplets happening underneath it. It's, I mean, like it's like a car bomb kind of like blast kind of thing where it's like just like it's like all this really nutty shit where it's like Zorn's writing that shit. And he's like, I want that. And it's like, he doesn't know how to explain it. He doesn't say it. He just, he wrote it and it's like, this is probably what he means. And then he just lets me do it. You know, it's like, it's like, I think I kind of jumped the logic a little bit, but that's, that's kind of the, what happens a lot of times. It's like, he's trusting us in the sound and the approach. He just says metal. He just says heavy. And he either likes what we do, or he likes the type of heavy tone that Matt has, or he likes the groove I play behind it, or he doesn't. Like, he's not going to be like, I need a gravity blast here, or let me get a hammer blast. He, he doesn't, that, that, he thinks all those names are stupid. And when I try to explain it to him, he's just like, I'm like, look, I know, but it's it, it comes from, sometimes it's related to the song where it was first done. It's just like, it's just, it's just, I didn't make up these words, man. I just found this shit out too, man. I don't know. It's just, you want me to do the thing or not? <laughs> like, we, we're we both kind of like laughing about it because I mean, I mean, I mean, I don't feel like an outsider in metal anymore, but I mean, I, I'm not a childhood metalhead, so it's, 
it's all still like you know there's still classic thrash records that i don't own that I, I i couldn't sing them from memory but i've listened to them you know it's like it's still all part of a learning process and what have you so 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 it's yeah it's kind of like he's like he he brought you in because you have this specialty and interest and 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 for the most part it's like you know like you said you 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 do what sounds right to you and yeah. if that's and 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 over the years more often than not he trusts my instinct which is which is like i mean i mean even just like just that alone you know that's heavy you know it's like he trusts my instincts this guy is a fucking award-winning composer arranger you know what i mean producer he made some heavy shit and he's like he lets me like he doesn't really dictate unless he absolutely has to and and like i said there's been times where it's like i'm doing something and he's just really not digging it and he has no problem letting me know he's not digging it but i don't take it personally because i understand that for him the only thing that matters is the music it's not about him and it's not about me and it's not about whoever hears this or if they're gonna like it or not he doesn't give a shit about what critics or booking agents or anyone thinks of his music he has a vision and that vision needs to come to fruition no matter what and if what i'm doing doesn't fit with that he's not going to have it and you know what if i was his age i wouldn't have it either i mean i so i i mean i think other guys maybe even younger players would probably take things way too personally get bent out of shape about it and talk shit but that's just ignorance mm-hmm. you know it's just mm-hmm. like when you pull yourself out of the situation what you have is here's a guy who's spending thousands and thousands of dollars some of that going to you and he's asking you to do something you're working a job what are you gonna do your job or tell your boss to fuck off like i'm come on i mean sure like i'm one of a of a thousand guys who could take my place in that band let's let's like i mean he wouldn't do that he would just start a whole new project call it something else and write a whole new book of music for that band that's what he would do but in new york city there's a thousand guys behind you ready to do your thing and could probably do it better. Like I said, Alex Cohen came to study with me in 2008 and he's playing Wilcox in solos with his feet and asking me about double bass technique. I'm like, you could play half of the Marco Miniman book. I can't even play the first page of New Breed and you want to like, like I, there's nothing I can show you with double bass that you can't already do better. I could show you how to make some music could show you how to play this kind of style of African stuff, but I can't show you this shit. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and that was dude, 10 years ago. Now there's guys like, you know, there's like, there's this video that Alex sent the other day of this drummer who's came up with like a new way of doing doubles technique, which is like the most logical way of doing it. And it has all the control and the finesse and power of just playing normal bass drum. That guy is going to inspire generations of dudes who are going to do crazy shit with their feet in the next 15 years. It's just going to happen. I might not be part of that, but, you know, I'm going to watch it and I'm going to support it and cheer it on. Just, you know, play with balls. Don't play like little wusses. There's mm-hmm. too many guys out there playing like wusses. Zorn would not have any patience for that. That's one thing for sure. Like the way guys are playing now, like the tipping and the super soft, delicate. He, would, he wouldn't give a shit how fast you played. He'd be mm-hmm. like, like, he'd rather hear Joey Barron blast, you know? And I mean, I would too, like. I, mean, I I get why guys like Patrice Hamlin and Longsworth complain about these other like tech death guys where they're just like, it's, it, it, I mean, they're literally like, they're just doing this. I mean, just get a computer, hit space bar, go to the bar, have a drink, have fun. Like why are you, you you're spending years practicing to do something nobody can hear? Like 
so it's yeah, you know, it's like a little side note that has nothing to do with no, the no, question, sure, but sure, sure. but it's like it's something you know, like like Zorn is looking for that though. It's like uh, he's looking for people who are going to be intense about the music and take it seriously and push themselves, even if they're in their comfort zone, push out of the comfort zone. That's what inspires him. That's why we did so many records in the time frame that we did because he just saw how even like he even saw with Medeski like because Medeski. You know, like any guy in that generation, like Trevor Dunn, John Medeski, these guys have done a ton of shit. M- Mike Patton, they've played with a ton of people. They've done a ton of shows. They got stories for years. You know, they've done all kinds of shit. But when he sees those guys like perk up and get excited about something, and then he sees younger guys like just busting their ass to get the music happening and showing up on time and showing up prepared, nothing excites a guy like that more than that. And as long as musicians do that with his music, he'll keep writing. He won't stop. He just won't. He, he he's looking for people who want to like do something. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. the the music means more to him than than a lot of other stuff. I mean, he cares about people. I mean, he he doesn't beat us down. It's not like we can't take breaks or have lunch or drink water or some shit like that. But you know, he he just wants to be surrounded by like minded people who just want to like. If this is what we're doing, how far can we take it? And and so that's like, like that was, I think a big part of what made Simulacrum as, I mean, for lack of a better word, successful as it was, was it was a group of people where everyone was on fire at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, y- you've like we sort of like touched on this, but like something that. I wanted to like get your take on like I I feel like another thing I got out of listening to the Imperial record is I feel like and and you and you talk just now about kind of like this you know very light way of playing the blast beat um, and and I feel like the blast beat is something where there are very like sort of codified like robotic ways of of playing it and it's kind of gotten to this thing with with all the triggers and everything but I feel like the way you play it and especially coupled with the way that Colin you know produces drums mm. like it seems like you you're taking you're taking these extreme metal techniques like blast beat and you're making it feel like very organic like like it's like it's almost like whatever the whatever the extreme metal version of like jazz drumming would be or something like mm. like try, taking like a blast vocabulary and figuring out how to make it kind of it can kind of slide around when it wants to, like in almost like a Tony Williams type of way. Totally. Like, do, do you feel like that's a, a thing that you're like consciously trying to do, like like make the blast more malleable mu- or musical or something? I think it's just byproduct. You know, it's 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 not an intentional thing. It's just for most of my life, I listened to jazz and fusion and played in salsa bands. So that that just it it's just going to be in the blast. There's I can't take it out. Like, there's no way to to remove that because it's part of the the musical experience so i think it's just a byproduct of of one not having triggers and and not having a lot like i've played on a lot of electronic kits uh, when i first started touring my grandfather's band and playing in the church especially that was years of playing on electronic drums like from the yamaha i forget the model it was like the mid 90s like the current mid 90s model of electronic pads with an alesis d7 than going to a Roland V-Drums kit when they first came out. Like, I've always been playing electric stuff, but never in a rock or metal context, with the exception of the band Braindance, which was like a... In the 90s, they were like a progressive, industrial, dark wave band in New York. Like, really cool shit. 
and they they had a very short reunion recently like in within the last several years and i got hired to be the drummer for that and we did a few shows and everything kind of got like people started getting really busy with other projects and and it kind of petered off and i actually got angel cote to be the sub for the band because there was a lot of touring i had coming up and i couldn't make the rehearsals and, and what have you but like that's a band where i'm playing v drums with in-ears to a click with a grid you know like i mean it's not like i don't have experience with this kind of stuff but i've never really had only only a couple of times ever have i had experience playing metal with triggers one of them was with artificial brain we did a gig out in in amityville um because uh because keith was just gotten the tour with Merker, like before their marriage and all that shit like he was like it was him and toby and ron from ron and toby from ko dot and, yep. and keith supporting Merker on tour in europe and i think also in the states for a little bit i forget but they did a they did some touring and so i filled in for artificial brain for a couple of, i think for two shows and and the first one was in in long island and and uh george from dehumanized it was his kit on stage like he was backlining for a lot of the bands which is pretty cool you know, but that was like, you know, that was a situation where it's like, man, you know, I mean, like, I mean, I love Artificial Brain. I've, I've been a big fan of theirs since they started. Like, I really love what they do. I love the writing. I, they're all really nice guys. They're really, they're such sweethearts and they're really easy work with. And I mean, like really big hearts. So they were very forgiving of, of letting me come in and <laughs> totally fuck up Keith's parts. But, you know, that was a gig where the, the you know, George has triggers. Sure. You know, and yeah. he and he's playing a twenty inch bass drum. And, you know, it's like three rack toms and two floors and everything's on a rack and it's totally not at all how I play drums or my setup or what I'm used to. I mean, the closest to that is Alex's kit in his studio. That's like got two, three toms, like three rack, two floor, a fuck ton of cymbals. Like like when we did the Thorn recording and Black Harvest and Black Heart Sutra and Imperial, there's like fifty fucking cymbals and, and I I like he loves it because he sees my brain just like malfunctioning. Whereas he likes to watch me sweat, but but he likes it because then I'll try things that I just don't normally do when I'm playing my setup. Because it's like, oh, I got these five bells. Let me see if I do this with these five bells. And like, because I don't know what the fuck else to do. It's a distractor. It's very distracting. So this kit was like that, but at least I had my own symbols, so I was familiar with the sounds. But it was cool playing with a trigger. I mean, it, it made certain, like, especially with that band where a lot of times it's just constant double bass and constant blast. It was like, oh my God, this makes it so much easier. And on the videos that Alex and Zach took of the gig, it's a 20 inch bass drum with a, like two pillows or a blanket in it. I'm like, no one's going to hear this fucking thing. This is going to be a nightmare. I'm going to sound like such a dickhead and fucking like, you know, like if I remember correctly, like uh, Adam Jarvis was playing. It was like, oh, God damn, I'm going to sound like such an asshole in front of all these monster drummers. Like this is like being worried about the wrong shit and not being in the moment. And then it's like, all right, well, we're playing the gig. Time to forget about all that. Time to just do the job. And it's like hearing the videos afterwards, like, oh. This is not bad. Like the, the triggers weren't that weird. They were like the new Roland ones. They were really nice. Like they like they were dynamic, and you could still hear the bass drum even with all those pillows and shit. You know, it was like, you know, this could be something cool to get into to to try. But but you can hear on the recording. There's all this nuance in the kick that doesn't exist with even with the trigger having a, a, a adjustable velocity. Right, right. You know, there's you can hear it in the kick. There's like 
and 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 everyone like when I first started working with Corey Unger, he used to try to correct that with me, and 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 he was right to do so. I mean, as a metal guy, you got to have a consistent foundation. That's just that's the nature of the music. And at that point, I didn't have it because I'd only been playing metal for a couple of years and double bass. But what he started realizing was that every time I was doing these volume increases and volume decreases, it was always in the same kind of part of the music. If it was going into a fill or a new section, the kick got louder. When it was coming out of a thing, it got softer naturally. And he started realizing that I was doing that on purpose. And that's when he was like, well, listen, you gotta like try to curb that a little bit because we got a compressor and a gate on you. And when you do that, the gate doesn't close. And he's right. It's like, you know, it's stuff that it was like, you're right. I got learn how to be more consistent but he also at the same time encouraged that he's like because a lot of metal guys don't do that the kicks are always the same volume no matter what and even a lot of bands that i like today there's there's guys where they get to a part of a song and they're playing the same volume as the really heavy part (laughs) and this part's not so heavy and you can hear it in the tone of the kick and the snare and the room if there's any room sound you hear it in the room sound it's like this is killing the spirit of, of this part of the piece, you know? And, and I've, so I've always decided like, I would rather be musical and seem weaker to people than be consistent and strong and wrong. Because I mean, like, I mean, there's parts of vile luxury that would sound terrible if the drums were bashingly loud. They would just sound awful. And, and I think because of the, the need to compete with a wall of amps, you know, because when you're underground metal, up until you get to a point where you're really touring, they rarely mic you. Unless they have the inputs, here's this guy, this fucking asshole has a full stack, and this guy's got a thousand watt head with an eight by ten. You can't even put a fucking kick on the mic. So you get used to just beating the fuck out of the drums. I mean, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many things I've broken over the years that I wish I didn't break. There were, I didn't need to play that hard. And, and studying with John Longstreet, that's one of the first things he was like, you know, for a jazz guy, you play way too hard. And he was totally right. You know, he's totally right. He's like, you know, it's, it's like the Matt's Morgan record, the difference between powerful and loud. Like, you hear John Longstreet without any triggers, that shit is fucking big. It's, I mean, he came to my room playing our little bebop kit that we have set up in the room, and he made that shit sound heavy as fuck with no triggers and doing doubles. It was loud as hell, big volume, tuned like a jazz kit, sounded like a metal kit. You know, didn't even have to, like, but just warming up. They just walked in the room. And, and he was like, yeah, I've watched your videos and I've seen you play a couple times. You get too into it, you get too passionate, and you hit too hard, and all you're doing is hurting yourself. And Because I told him, like, in the past, you know, I've had problems with, like, carpal tunnel and shoulder stuff and back stuff, like, over the years. And, and he's he's one of the guys that was, like, really, like, look, like, Dude, you're you're playing too hard. You're playing at 240 or 230, but you're playing like you're in an arena in a rock band. Like you can't you're going to burn out and you're not going to be able to sustain this. You have to find the balance with that. So it's like a lot of it is, you know, me still like for me that's homework. That's that's like a mo and then Alice would be like, "Oh dude, you got to check out okay, for that, you got to work on this exercise and this exercise and this exercise and this exercise and check these things out and do it left-hand lead and then do a left-foot lead and it's like mm-hmm. all this mm-hmm. really helpful stuff that's been like helping make the blasts in Vile Luxury 
better, but still like the for me the aesthetic is always going to be retain that that sense of naturalness you know and 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 phrasing like i dynamics like i think there's still a lot of room for that in metal you know and and more and more and more people are going to explore it and they're going to do it better because they're going to have more options and more examples to get inspired by and they'll start to like you know i mean for the next record i mean the like I mean, even for some of the blasts, like already we're, we're thinking of, of different timbres. I'm trying to figure out different techniques, not like finger technique or wrist. I mean like, okay, well, how am I gonna hold this mallet with this drumstick? Can I use like a vibraphone technique to kind of do this so I can get this kind of blast thing going on in this part of this new song that we're writing? Or in this section, like what would happen if we invert what a blast is? Like, like just, just for the fuck of it, just for fun, just like thought experiments, nothing serious, but you know, I mean, you've had like 20, 30 years now of, of, of blast beats and it, it went from being this like kind of punk aesthetic thing to this monolithic thing to this like scientific, industrial, physical, uh, Olympic thing now. Cause now it's like guys are doing all kinds of crazy, like you have to basically be in shape like an athlete to fucking even do it now. But what if we get away from the gymnastics for a second? What if we explore orchestration for a second? You know, I mean, I remember seeing Lev doing blasts on a Tom and he's not the first guy to do it, but I saw Lev playing this blast with a, with a rack Tom. And then I saw Keith doing the same thing, but a different way. And it's like, oh my God, the, the, the timbre is the perfect timbre for that part of the song. Why didn't I never think of putting that in any of the metal bands I ever played in? Just, oh look, I just moved what him was doing what. Like, it, it, no effort. It's like, there's still so much more that we can explore is, is so long as we're not trying to prove a point, I guess. Exactly, I don't know. yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, Vile Luxury is definitely like, you know, it's it's an album that I would point to that, in terms of like bringing these dynamics into extreme metal, like it's, it's definitely like, it feels like a step, you know what I mean? And, and I'm excited to hear, you know, where your band and other bands go with it, you know? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the beauty of like what we were talking about earlier with metal. Like there's still, you can be into commercial metal you can go to Avenged Sevenfold and get fulfilled, or you can find something new and get the same kind of fulfillment. Yeah. And, and they, you know, I'm not saying this to like, like to dog on these bands. I'm just saying we're all part of the same family. We all inspire a group of people that wherever part of the reality or world they live in, they see something that fucking pisses them off. And how do I deal with it? How do I peacefully and humanly or intellectually or spiritually or just in a casual way, how do I deal with this thing that just fucking pisses me off? Because there's not a single person who's into metal that doesn't get pissed about some shit. You would not like this music if somewhere in your core there isn't a little angry fucker. It's the one thing we all got in common. Whether you're black metal and you think the fucking Christians came along and stole your culture and your history and your country. Or you're some like fucking hardcore guy, some hardcore punk from fucking bowels of London or some fucking you know, meathead in Brooklyn. It doesn't matter, you, you know, or some experimental fuck in a conservatory who's just doing nothing but listening to Corrales and Porter and Death Spell Omega all day long. You're angry about something. Something bothers you. Something is not right. 
and it fucks with your brain a little bit and you gotta you gotta get that out you gotta mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i forget who it was but somebody called slayer the positive display of negative energy that's what a mosh pit is you know it's like here's a a place where you can pummel another person and they're gonna accept you pummeling them and you're gonna accept it if it happens to you because i don't know what the fuck because you got to get that shit out like it's like it's like the the friendly human connective way of banging your head against the wall because mm-hmm. something, and it's not like any of these bands don't talk about shit that doesn't bother them. Most of these bands talk about shit that just pisses them off. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah. Okay. So there's just just to close. There's there's two names that I want to throw at you and just get your take because we've touched on so much but okay so we went re- you went really quick by bill ward i'm curious if you can just talk about you know your feelings about him as a drummer and just where he might relate to all this and it's interesting like i mean i know my dad was a big billy ward fan like really loved his like he loved all those early black sabbath records he kind of got out of it by the time the like after the third record like once things started getting more like weird for him right what he considered weird like my dad was not a kind of guy like white zinfandel was like doing a shot of the moonshine for him i mean he, he tried weed once and hated it like the guy did he liked to be clear-headed and he so he really liked all the early sabbath where it was like you know the 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 allegories and the imagery was very obvious what they were talking about and what they were against because that was like his alignment and he also he kind of felt that Billy Ward was more interesting as a drummer back then. And some of those bootleg videos, like the early Sabbath touring days, like there's some shit that he does that sounds like Carlock, you know, like like Keith Carlock, I should say, like the like the way he plays. And then you could see like years of touring and drugs and boozing and partying, and he's just kind of becoming like a regular rock guy. But then you hear that music, and it's like that that freeform blues thing is not as apparent. It's more developed. It's a bigger show. And I'm sure, you know, I mean, I wasn't seeing them back then, but I'm sure their show for when it was just four dudes on a stage rocking out to later on where even like post, uh, you know, post Ozzy and it's Dio. And, you know, I mean, at that point, that's a, you're talking about a massive production, a massive show. You can't be doing a bunch of crazy shit. But as a kid, I didn't understand that. You know, I had no, it's like, well, you know, Bill Bruford, Gary Husband, you know, it's like, I was still such a fucking fusion nerd that it took like really years and years later for me to like appreciate his playing even on those like later Sabbath records. Like he, I wouldn't say he's a a huge personal influence, but being around guys like Earl and Nick from Resolution 15 and, and, and my dad and just getting older, it, it kind of taught me to appreciate just how fucking wonderful of a drummer he was like his phrasing on those early records like all his fill ideas his call and response is so fucking natural but it's it's not like billy uh mitch billy mitchell oh my god (laughs) it's not like mitch mitchell you know where there's this like fluidity and this just jazz vocabulary it's like i've clearly have checked out like buddy rich and elvin jones and max roach and all this like shit that I like immediately that like, gravitated towards that. Like that was like, holy fuck. You know, so like like even um oh oh fuck, what's his name? Band of Gypsies. Um Oh Buddy Miles. Yeah, like yeah. even Buddy Miles I didn't really appreciate as a kid. I was just like, well, you know, same thing like later Sabbath. I was like, well, you know, the drumming's like pretty forgetful. <laughs> like that's fucking I mean I'm a kid at that time, so it's 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 
expected, but you know what I mean? It's like, I, I didn't get how prolific Billy Ward was and how impactful. I mean, you, you basically have entire genres of metal that you can thank Billy Ward that they exist, you know? I mean, there's not a single guy in doom or metal or thrash or death even that that doesn't have black sabbath to thank for their music you know and it's from a historical context that's massive it's really massive and 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 maybe personally on on playing level it's not as impactful but from a historical context like i we don't get Tomas without Billy. Sure. You know, yeah. and, and that you don't get Ken Shock without Billy. You don't get these guys without him. And that means the world to me because those guys mean the world to me. Those guys are like the guys I like, you know, when I grow up, one day I'll play like them. You know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. one day I'll be mature enough to just hold a groove down like these guys hold a groove down. But, you know, it's like without Sabbath and Zeppelin, all this stuff that came before, we don't. We don't get what we have now. And that's the importance of, of at least embracing it a little bit. Not you don't who gives a fuck if you like it. Who cares a fuck what anyone likes? Just embrace it. It, it got you here. Right, exactly. Um, the other name that I wanted to throw out, because I saw this in, I, like you would listen to him in another interview, and it's not someone people talk about a lot. It's someone I'm a big fan of is Steve Shelton. Oh, man. Dude, yeah. He's amazing. He's, he's, that's, that's a very special voice on the instrument. You know, he's just showing people that there's another way to... Uh, drums it, Drums are like the really... It's like, if you want to understand why the United States is what it is on a very cosmetic, surface-deep level, you don't have to look any further than the drums. You know, the drums is the one instrument that is 100% modular. It's 100% an industrial-age instrument where you have basically industrial-age spare parts sprockets pipes ah, let me grab this let me grab this uh that's for a mic stand i'll take that oh is that like a thing to hold up a canvas i'll use that too i'll put a little thing there oh, what that instrument's from china oh that thing's from turkey oh that thing's from brazil okay yeah put it there put it there put it there put it there okay boom got a drum set let's do a gig that's see that's the, that's america that's the u.s that's the modern take of what the is the drum set mm-hmm. and still mm-hmm. we only see a handful of people who set up the drum set in the way that makes sense for them. I'm starting to believe that the way we set up the drums is wrong. It's wrong. It's just wrong and you gotta you gotta figure out your body type. You gotta work on yourself. Whatever that means, stretching, exercise, weights, running, whatever, whatever your body needs to be healthy, figure that shit out. Measure your body, look at your wingspan, your your shoulder to hip ratio, all that stuff, and then look at a kit and put things in the most ergonomic, comfortable place, and I guarantee you for most people, it will not be like your standard looking drum set. It just won't. It just won't be. And like Steve Shelton, I mean, the first time I saw his kit, I was like, what is this? What the fuck is this? How does anyone play this? And then I saw him play, and then it made sense. He, it's perfectly ergonomic for his build. He's got a strange, like Sasquatchian build. I mean, he and he, Figured out how to make his kit, and even the way he hits things, it's like, I wouldn't think to hit there, but if you're talking about not killing your shoulder to reach a symbol, oh yeah, do that. Why didn't I think of that? It's so simple what he's doing. I mean, even musically, like like, like what Lonnie did for me with drumming and, and, and funk grooves, 
Steve Shelton also did in the same way, I think, for metal, where it's like you can literally mute any track he's playing on and just listen to the drums, and you know exactly in the song where you are. Take any typical death metal drummer, mute the band, hit play. Do you know what part of the song you're in? Fucking no, because there's no dynamics. There's no phrasing. I mean, everyone thinks phrasing is doing a paradiddle in variations and calling it linear, and that's phrasing. That's not phrasing. That's playing a pattern. That's Phrasing is something deeper than what you do. And that's a big part of the problem of the world in general today is everyone's so concerned with what you do and how many things come of it, whether it's likes or gains. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not about that ever. You know, he figured out, like, I mean, you listen to a Steve Shelton track, if you know the band that he's playing in, you know the song, you know what part of the song you're in. He he's a composer. He he's a he's hearing he's hearing music. He just happens to play drums. He's not really a drummer. I mean, Jorge Rossi is another guy that they remind me of each other. Steve Shelton and and Jorge Rossi, who was you know was sure Brad Miller. You know, I mean, because that's a guy, that guy too. He's not really a drummer. You know, Jorge Rossi's not a drummer. If I remember correctly, he's actually a piano player. And now he's living in Spain or whatever, back to playing piano. He was just playing drums for fucking homeboy. You know what I mean? I mean, he is a drummer. He plays gigs. But, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, And his approach to playing with, with that trio, it's the same thing that Steve is doing, but it's in this jazz context, this art of the trio context. So it's like it's got to be an idiom, whereas Steve has got a little bit more freedom to orchestrate as he sees fit, but the guy's making music. They're making music. They're not playing drums. They're making music. They happen to play drums. And and that to me is a much higher aesthetic than just being a badass drummer. Like being a badass drummer is just your job. That's just get to the pad, get to the studio, put in the hours, do the work. Do the work. That's that's what that is. Like badass should just be, well, yeah, I'm hiring somebody. I hope to God they're a badass. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I don't know anybody mm-hmm. from any band that's ever hired me because they're like, yeah, I heard you're kind of mediocre at gospel music, so I figured I'd give you a shot. No, no, they're like, I heard you're the MD at this church. I need a drummer for this thing or I need a bass player for this. Can you do it? Are you available? What do you charge? You know, or, hey, this is the music for our band. This is what we're about. We're not looking, like, no band ever has been, like, seeking average drummer for international touring band. (laughs) Doesn't matter if you have, no, they're always looking for the baddest motherfucker. So being a bad motherfucker should just be, should not be a goal. Like, you should be the best version of yourself because what the fuck else are you going to do? What else are you going to do in life? Be half-assed the whole time? Like, like it, that, that, that sounds boring. That sounds really boring. I'm not saying you can't have a life, but... If you're going to do something, you should be a badass at your thing. And it, who cares if it's if you're not the best badass? Like best badass is just some boring shit anyway. If you can make music though, then it doesn't matter where your chops are at or where how many paradiddles you can do per minute and you know where your blast is at or how many fucking uh fucking bata grooves you've memorized like that then it stops mattering because now you're being in the moment and you're taking whatever you have and fully realizing them and that's what those guys do and that's inspiring like steve shelton is really inspiring and i mean i mean i know confessor doesn't you know that's it's now kind of loincloth and they they do what they do when they do it but i mean he's an important voice 
for for not just the music but for the instrument you know guys like that should be at least a little bit celebrated and talked about you don't have to like his music or his bands that's not the point the fact that a guy like that exists and was brave enough to put it out there you know that's that's beautiful that's that's real shit everyone out out there now can get on their fucking iphone and here's me blasting a 280 I mean, not me. <laughs> I can't do that. But I mean, like guys who do that, it's like it's like okay, but then what? What next? Two ninety? Okay, what? Three hundred? Okay, what? Three ten? We got a pattern going here, right? What happens when you're finally seventy and you hit three fifty, and it's been thirty years, and you look back on your on your discography or your career? And all it's been is just getting faster. You're an athlete. You're not a musician. You're an athlete. And there's a lot of athletes in music. Music's full of a lot of athletes and craftsmen. There's not that many musicians and even rarer and lesser artists and creatives. You know, because everyone has this misconception that, oh, if you're in the arts, you're creative. And if you're not, you're not. But the best businessmen are the creative businessmen. The best police officers, the best detectives are the creative ones who can imagine what the fuck is happening after the fact. I mean, can you imagine just walking into a room, somebody's murdered, and you just got to figure that shit out? Mm -hmm. You just got to look at the room and go, all right, it looks like maybe about between two and three hours ago, the guy probably went around back, but then came back over here through this window. And like, like, what? the fuck really you guys are just figure this out like like without dna evidence it's like well i'm just gonna look around and he probably did this with that with this with that you know what i mean you you can't just be you can't be average you gotta be creative you gotta be a badass to to do that and i mean you could be a janitor and be creative as fuck come up with new ways to clean things more efficiently and faster and better it's possible for anything it's just you have to be willing to be honest with what you have and what you know and, and, and try to see something different and try to interject something that's new and natural and personal. You know, Steve Shelton is personal. People don't sound like that. You know, that's important, you know, because people will be in, like when Ken Shaw came out, like, I mean, if you've heard certain kinds of music, maybe you've heard something like that. But for metal, for hardcore for hardcore, for New York hardcore, you're talking about like Cro-Mags and all this, Madball and all this shit. Then you got Ken Shock. And he's like, it's like the meters and fucking Miles Davis in metal. Are you fucking kidding me? Like that's, that's next level. That's next level. Like convincing the world that you can be a metalhead and groove just as hard as any fucking funk or blues or what have you. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that this, Thomas Hawk, proving that this music fucking grooves. You know, Steve Shelton proving that you can orchestrate the drums. It doesn't have to just be this battering ram that supports guitar riffs and boring vocals. The drums can speak. The drums are a language. What he does is more African than even a lot of jazz. And that's very hyperbolic what I said. It's it's an opinion, but it's an opinion that I hold on to because it's like the more I'm checking out this stuff over in that continent and all these little countries and all... The, the thousands of styles of music they have in each country in this giant continent, like what he does connects with what they're doing more than some dude who's just blasting in a room or just like working on fucking every permeation of a paradiddle that they're going to basically use on a solo drum video to get likes 
all that work and effort to get likes, to get, it's, it scares me. Mm-hmm. It's not what music's about. I mean, I like Steve Shelton, but I don't have to like every fucking thing that guy may post on Facebook to prove that. I go to the shows. I bought the CD. If there's a shirt, I'll get that too. If I ever get the chance to meet him, I'll just tell him I love him, you know? And I appreciate that he went forward because it's like playing like that doesn't mean you're going to make money Mm -mm, mm -mm. or that you're going to sustain a family or a life Mm -mm. or be able to keep a roof over your head. You know, it's like, it's as I'm saying, it's a, to, to be that real and honest is a risk. It's a massive risk. Even in this day and age where it's easy to find your audience and find your little corner of people who will cheer you on, you know, he came before all that. He came way before all that. And he was, he, I mean, he's been doing this for what? How many years? Is, well, like Confessor was what, 90s or something, if I remember? Or, yeah, l- like, late, late 80s. I think I can't remember when he joined. Yeah. The, the I mean, record is, is 91. I mean, he was already doing that. I mean, what was what? Nine when he did that? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, Heller, what, what age were we? You know what I mean? And he's one of the first guys I ever heard championing him was, was Heller. All like Heller, Longstreth, Cohen, all those guys. They were the first guys I heard like, oh, this is the guy this is the fucking man right here. And I was like, oh, and then I heard Confessor. And again, it was like, I don't understand what's happening here. And, I, and I've been listening to Norwegian black metal and, and gore guts and cryptopsy, but this shit is really weird. This is like almost like Phantomas or something. I didn't know how to hear it. Like I first heard it in like the mid 2000s. So it was like, I was like, what is, this is bizarre. But then again, the more listening to, to Confessor and then, Finally, like years later with YouTube, like getting to see videos of him playing live, like like people would upload shit, like or, like like there was some like run that Confessor did where they kind of had like a reunion thing, yeah. And somebody filmed all of it, and I was, I mean, I would I would just watch these videos on repeat. I was just like, fuck, man, like I, wow, look at this guy, look at what he's doing. It doesn't, it shouldn't make sense, but it makes perfect sense. It's amazing, you know. He's. You know, I hope it's not the kind of thing where usually guys like that when they're dead is when like years later somebody comes along <clears throat> that's popular at the moment and uh, they go, hey, guys, like what happened to Meshuggah now? It's like, oh, now that like Steve Coleman and these guys say that Meshuggah's cool, then I guess we all can listen to it now. I mean, I remember when I was losing gigs left, right, and center for being a metalhead. You're going, you guys should really check out Chaos Free. This shit's amazing. Mm-hmm. And you were either cool with it or you were like, Okay, cool. Yeah, that's yeah, that's cool, man. Yeah, I don't think he plays jazz anymore. <laughs> you know, there was actually somebody, a, a friend of mine, because I hadn't seen him in a while, he thought I was touring with Meshuga. And I'm like, that's the most flattering thing I think you've ever said to me. But no, no. I was not touring with Meshuga. <laughs> in fact, I was home most of that time. We could have totally hook, hooked up and jammed and hung out. I was home. Like, you know, it's like, it's like, but you know, it's a typical New York thing. Like, if they don't see you, they generally think you're on tour. Right, and and right, so right, people right, started right. finding out I was playing in metal bands locally. They just somehow, this rumor started that I was playing in Meshuggah. And I was like, no, I went to go see Meshuggah mm, because mm. they were in town with all the other like fucking jazz nerds and classical nerds and metalheads in New York. Like, where were you? Yeah. Like, dude, they played a like fucking Blender Theater. Where were you? <laughs> um, 
I think that's about I think that's about what I got. So, that's okay. That's a yeah. lot. Yeah, yeah. We went for it. Yeah, that was awesome. Good. Um, I'm glad. Yeah, no, th- thanks a lot for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you for stopping by and, Absolutely. and, and doing this. This yeah. is really cool. Cool. All right, thank you. Cheers. That's it. Thanks so much for listening. Huge thanks to Kenny for his time and stay tuned for the next episode of the Heavy Metal Bebop Podcast coming soon.